everyone. Welcome back, my fellow Westorians, checking out our unusual start time. It is officially 10 p.m. on Saturday. We usually do these at 3 on Sunday, Eastern, that is. But we have a great reason for that. It's a fun to do it at an unusual time, but it's not just randomly chosen to be fun. It's because our guest is in China, and that's a long way away. The time difference is substantial. So for him, it would have been 3 o'clock in the morning, but we're not trying to get people to come at three o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> welcome. It's my fault. It's, yeah, completely on me. How dare you live in China? <laughs> but of course, that makes you an excellent guest for this discussion today. Not only because you live in China and have a deep connection to it, because you are also the host of the History of China podcast. And that is extremely relevant to our topic of ET today. So welcome to the show, Chris Stewart. Well, thank you very much. Guilty as charged on all counts, and happy um, <laughs> here. Right on. So we're both in the Agora Podcast Network. It's great to be in uh, that collection of excellent podcasters, and we've been in there for a while, a few years together there, and it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've mm-hmm. listened to a lot of new shows that I wouldn't have found that way, and it's good stuff. Check it out, We're y'all. an eclectic group, but uh, worthwhile, I think. Yeah, yeah. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So as I've said many times, it's likely true for a lot of you listening, certainly not everyone. I know European history better than I know other types of history, including Southeast Asian history. So we have an easier time catching parallels and, and catching the influences of George. And George, frankly, under, knows European history more than he knows Asian history, too. So these things overlap. We're all A lot of us are in the same boat with that regard. So Chris is going to help us when we go through ET and find some of these Chinese influences, also get some anecdotes from China that are really interesting. Just kind of help us understand what's influence versus what's imagination. Not that one's necessarily better than the other, but they're both fun. It's fun to know the difference and to parse it out and just to know where we're standing with all this. So should be a lot of fun. Well, you're, you're talking me up a lot, and I hope I can live up to the uh, reputation that you provided. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. And Sean, what are you drinking tonight? Anything on theme for Saturday night? Uh, some sort of strange Saturday beverage, or are you still He's in Sunday drunk. beverage mode? That, that's right. Huh? <laughs> no, no alcohol. And I, I think I did mix more than normal in here. This is like the Green Machine Naked Drink with regular Mountain Dew and watermelon Dew, watermelon Mountain Dew, and the raspberry bang drink and uh, <laughs> raspberry face. sparkling ice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this. Uh, yeah, I. There's a lot Impressious. of the red doesn't show up at all. It's just green. It looks like yeah, the green pretty much took a rich brownish. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look <laughs> good. Brown. It doesn't look that good. sounds so appetizing. It tastes good. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's not right. It's not really how it looks. <laughs> 
just thinking about the, I, much like you as Easton, probably most people in our circles, I know a lot, I probably know a lot about American history, I'd say. Decent amount about European history, minimal amount about Chinese history. I think I know more about with story history than China or even yeah. even European history. <laughs> I probably know Westerosi history even better than Europe. Definitely true for me. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the reasons I started doing my my show is because I was just like, well, maybe I should learn about the place that I'm living in. Oh, and, that's uh, cool. So, well, how long have yeah. you lived in China? Is it Shanghai you live in, right? Yep, we are. We are locked down and proud here in shanghai right now oh, wow. so, plenty um, of time for podcasting yeah. <laughs> plenty of time oh yeah no I've, my schedule is wide open <laughs> uh, <laughs> i've lived uh, in shanghai for about gosh 12 or 13 years oh, at this yeah. point and that's nice China for a year longer than that and it Never gets not weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually found your podcast and listened to it before we were in Agora together. So that's that's neat. I mean, I did learn. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I learned a lot about the early stuff that I hadn't heard. And there's, there's a question I have later that I about like one of the weirdest Chinese emperors you can think of. And I, I've got to guess what it might be based on some of those early episodes. <laughs> so we'll see when we get there. But we'll, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say in that. So that's a little build up, folks. We're going to hear about the weirdest, strangest Chinese emperor we can we can think of here. Well, E.T. certainly rivals even actual Chinese history because George really took the brakes off when he started talking about the empire of the vast East that nobody knows anything about other than <laughs> legends from 40,000 years ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> so let's let's give a couple shout outs and get started. Let's first of all, we want to say you all must check out Queens, the musical on YouTube. If you look up Westeros musicals at the YouTube channel about the six <laughs> wives of Henry VIII, and that is a musical on Broadway. And this is a Westeros version that was performed at Ice and Fire Con. Yeah, and it's so. about an hour long, and it's really, really funny. We'll star a bunch of familiar faces, so please check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, we've watched it twice. Yeah. Two, more like two and a half times, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and shout out to goodqueenally.tumblr.com, one L and Allie. That's Nina's blog. She provided some excellent notes again today. And right now, there's an excellent discussion over there. She answered a question regarding why didn't Aegon add the Riverlands to the Crownlands, or at least more of it, because after all, the Riverlands was not independent when he conquered Westeros, so he could have taken more of it, but why not? So that's a good question. You'll want to check that out for the full answer. Well, let's start off with a little anecdote about a dragon-like dinosaur, because everybody likes dinosaurs, and they are dragony. There's been two bat-winged dinosaurs discovered that I know of or that I read about in 2000. The first was in 2015. And the second one was very recent. And they look like little dragons. That's part of why this is cool, right? But but both of these dragons, these dragon dinosaur things <laughs> were discovered in China. And the first one is called Yi Qi, like Yi T, but with a Q. So it's almost the same name. Well, sort of. I don't know. It looks close. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. So a little bit of a science for y'all to get started here. <laughs> There's a large number of dinosaurs that are getting found all, all the time in China. And I, I had no idea about these bat wing little creatures, but I'm looking at the photo of the, the painting, I guess, now. And, <laughs> the photo. Uh, <laughs> that <would be> amazing. <laughs> yeah. Actual footage. And no, that looks really quite amazing. Right? It's got little leathery wings and yeah. holding one out. It and, does really look like a dragon. He isn't exaggerating. 
I wonder if that's the artist is like, what else could they think of but a dragon? So that's why they painted it looked like a dragon, or is it really just that's how it came out? I don't know. Yeah, we're kind of in like, the cultural bubble right now, where it's like you you probably Im- immediately mentally go to a dragon if you thought lizard creature with <laughs> flying. Wings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought that was pretty cool. It's only a little relevant, but it's very cool. So let's move on. The trivia question for this episode, which city on the map is farthest east? Now, given curvature of the globe, we don't know what the curvature of the globe is. So let's say which city on the map is the farthest on the right, if you're facing it. (laughs) So we'll say it that way. It's also, it's probably the farthest east, but with respect to, we don't know how the globe curves and all that. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a clue. It's not Ashai. So it's something, there's there's stuff at, east of that so on the map. It doesn't go much farther than that, but that's, there you go. There's a little clue. Now, all the way on the other side of the world, Westeros isn't the only the farthest known continent to the West. It's more than that because when George named it Westeros, he hadn't drawn the rest of the world yet. He had given names. He had created Ashai. He had created E.T. He created Valyria and all that, but he hadn't, it was more of an imagination where they were in the world were, in his head. They weren't drawn yet. So it wasn't exactly settled. But when he named it Westeros, he kind of made it pretty clear that it's to the West, right? <laughs> That's pretty straightforward. And then Essos and Sathorios is like, hmm, East, South, West. I think there's a pattern here. There is no Northos that we know of, but maybe maybe if we go far enough, we'll find a Northos. Northeros. <laughs> He's a creative guy, but his naming conventions are a little bit pedestrian. <laughs> yeah, we, he doesn't get the highest score for those ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like those, those, to be it's fair. Like those cartoons when you're trying to think of your name, you're like, Westeros, <laughs> <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> to be fair, in the real world, we have North America, South America, <laughs> yeah. North Carolina, South Carolina, yeah, maybe we're no New better. York. Uh, yeah. <laughs> China. Wait, no, oh, never mind. <laughs> Sometimes we didn't even bother putting New or, or South Montana or anything on it. And we named the place just Mountain. That's what Montana means? Montana. It just means Mountain? Oh, that makes sense. Oh, my goodness. What does China mean? That is a question with a fairly oh, long answer, okay. but it is probably derived from the Greek word for silk. Hmm. No kidding. <laughs> wow. I, I seem to remember I read that it was... Uh, I don't know, 1600s-ish, it was something Europeans were using to refer to China, but people of China didn't call themselves that, but I guess it stuck no, eventually. Uh, or the, using the term China to self-refer, yeah, that's a really modern thing, the bobbing my head out of frame. Like the, in, in 100, in the year 100, what would someone who lived in what we think of as, in Shanghai, what would someone have called themselves? Would they have called themselves Chinese? Would they have called themselves no, they, I really don't have a wonderful answer to that because I, I don't know exactly what somebody would, would self-refer to as, but they would have been subject of Wu. And so the self-referential would be often the, the term of the dynasty in power mm. rather than what we refer to as a nation state today. Mm, okay. And I, th- I noticed something like that, maybe that's a little relevant, that's going to come up a little more later, is that there's there's more the capital moves more in E.T. than we've seen in other places. And I think that I was wondering if that's a Chinese and, thing. And George is pretty on the money with that. That's nice. consistent. Good job, George. All right, well, <laughs> more on that later. Let's make our way through this other stuff. So yeah, George had some things in his head and it makes sense to name a European-influenced continent. 
Western, Westeros, like that's the influence and the Asian centric stuff is the Eastern. So it frames it for what his average reader is going to be like. That's what we're talking about today. E.T. is to Southeast Asia, especially China, what Westeros is to Europe. Obviously, it's a, there's plenty of differences. It's heavily influenced by real world cultures, names, traditions, but with George's world building skills mixed in. Let's start off with George actually commenting on this himself. This is a 2014 blog post that Nina found for us. Dear George, I'm a huge fan of ASOIAF and the TV show, and I'm pretty sure there are lots of Asian fans just like me. A Song of Ice and Fire has become a serious project attracting people of all countries and all races. There is a white race, a black race in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, and many other races. Why is there no Asian race? Chinese-like, Japanese-like, in the Game of Thrones show and A Song of Ice and Fire books. I know this can sound offensive, but I just wish to know, know the fact. That would be awesome to meet a character who would inspire Asians as much as Daenerys or Jon Snow. I heard there are many dragons and other wonderful creatures over the Jade Sea. <laughs> well, Westeros is the fantasy analog of the British Isles in its world, so it is a long, long way from the Asia analog. There weren't a lot of Asians in Yorkish England either. That is not to suggest that such places don't exist, however. You will want to get The World of Ice and Fire when it comes out in October. In the Other Places section, you will find a lot of material about Yi Ti, the island of Lang, and the plains of the Jogos Nai, which you may find of interest. Yeah, yes. Well, we do, George. We do find them of interest. And, and things have only gotten better since then. There's the, the horizon has expanded, so to speak, especially with the expansion of the TV show possibilities. But that said, George did a compelling enough job with the world building that, of course, it's your mileage may vary kind of situation, as it does with all things. But our episode on The Great Empire of the Dawn is our most watched video on YouTube. For podcast downloads, it wouldn't be number one. But still, let that sink in, though. It's Even though it has very compelling parallels like the Amethyst Empress stuff, Blood Emperor, Bloodstone Emperor stuff, it doesn't have a lot to directly to do with The Song of Ice and Fire. So putting that all together, one of our most successful, longest episodes is on a topic that is 99% world building. And though that 1% of plot relevance is particularly juicy, it's really subtle and under the radar. Most people don't even catch it. Most people don't even know it's there. You have to be like someone who listens to podcasts to have even probably thought about it at all, let alone heard the particular episode where it gets discussed. So that 1% that nugget, of course, is so cool because it delves into the origins of dragons, dragon bonding via magical bloodlines passed down over long periods of time and connects to some parts in the Song of Ice and Fire, notably the House of the Undying scene. Danny may have seen visions of her ancestors that predate Valyria, which speaks to the origins of Valyrian dragon riding. Maybe. Either way, it isn't told to us directly who or what nation they belong to, but it's a very compelling possibility. And Valyria will come up a lot today as well, along with these even farther ancient connections, because it's a really close comparison. Vast, magical, wealthy, old, much older than Valyria. There's a debate as to which human culture is the oldest on Planetos. Yeeti says it's them. Uh, the Giscari, the Ashai, and the Sarnori are in the conversation. But Yeeti maybe has the best argument. <laughs> and that's, that's the scale of how ancient this culture is. It's arguably held power as great or close to the levels of Valyria. But it declines more steadily rather than just vanishing after some great epic doom. And that's really important because the Giscari were are pretty much gone. As a, the, the people are around, but they don't really have a big nation. The Sarnori, as we discussed very recently, there's only 20,000 or so of them left. And Valyria is gone, obviously. So of all these ancient civilizations, Yeeti might be the oldest, and it's the only one there, for sure. <laughs> so that's a huge deal. And it may have managed continuity through the long night. 
which is another astonishing feat if that's what happened. Maesters say it didn't or argue about a lot of it. But if we had a perspective in E.T., which we may get someday, not in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in some other story, it might be any number of things. Like, we get that perspective that Sean was asking you about, Chris, of what would they self-identify as? Well, these questions would have to be answered if this was ever put on TV. And it wouldn't be the maester perspectives of Westeros that would be our perspective. So is that is that a somewhat relevant or accurate to how China would be described? Like it's super, super old and super documented. And, and is that kind of a loose parallel or just speak to us on that? I would say it's, it's a really, George is getting that as close to a one-to-one ratio as really can, can be because for China, I think it was up until the mid 19th century, basically the academic consensus was that humanity probably started in China. And then it was only the the finding of the pre-human hominid bones in places like Ethiopia that that kind of said, oh, no, we, we came out of Africa, not out of Asia. But certainly China has a lot of history and their own tellings of the, their own beginnings are, yeah, it's, it stems out of the very making of the firmament and the earth itself. Oh. And it's, it's hard to say when mythology stops and, and history sort of begins. And actually, it's only in the last few decades that there have been more archaeological finds that have sort of firmed up of like, oh, the, the Shang dynasty is is probably inaccurate but we at least have written records that were carved into pig scapulas that actually exist (laughs) why pig scapulas that seems well you can't fit as many letters on the femur (laughs) yeah you gotta pick you gotta pick your bones carefully we've had a lot of discussions about bones lately on this show (laughs) that's interesting as I was reading back through the the chronicles of of ET, I I also was noting to myself of what the the letter writer wrote that it it is a way of writing and a way of telling that is ignorant of that place, but that makes it feel more real in a lot of ways because we don't know about everywhere, even as informed as we are today we have very limited knowledge about the places we don't know about. And I've always appreciated how that comes across in the style of the writing of it's these maesters writing who are like learned and intelligent individuals, but they only know what they know. And they are sometimes, they'll sometimes stop what their story is and tell you directly of, well, I don't really know much about that, but maybe maybe somebody else will write about that someday. And it, it, it's it's really true to history of, I think, literally like the very first actual Chinese person that we know about in in historical record arrived in Britain in the 1700s. Whoa, yeah, that's pretty late, huh? Wow. You wouldn't think it'd be that late in time, no, but it's right there. Wow. Yeah, wow. That <laughs> is, I would have guessed way, lot, yeah. way earlier. Yeah. Jeez. 
That's another thing that I think that comes up a lot. This thing I want to maybe set the stage for here is that also in the real world, there are people that when they hear things about China, including Marco Polo, is a quote from him later or a reference to him later where he didn't write down oh, certain things because yeah. he didn't think people would believe it. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to write this down. No one's going to believe me anyway. And that's exactly what we see with some of these maesters are discounting things specifically because they seem too far-fetched. They, they're not discarding it based on evidence. They're discarding it because it sounds too far. It doesn't sound possible to them, but it's... Let's not be absurd. Yeah, but like what's <laughs> absurd? What seems absurd to us may not seem absurd to someone on the other side of the world if they're used to it, especially in a world with magic. I mean, come on. In general, it's true, but it's that we get extra irony because sometimes we know the truth from what we've read. <laughs> yeah, Otherwise, we know, like, we know characters have seen certain <laughs> things and the maester has an opinion that we know is incorrect. So it makes us suspicious of other things. Not only are sometimes they uh, might disregard something because it seems too wild to them or whatever, but sometimes they might do it for maybe political reasons. So like they might want to downplay some other kingdom's accomplishment or whatever. There, there's other biases. So I wonder how, I wonder if that's less true and it's this far away or maybe, maybe not though. They don't want to seem weaker than the, anyone, anyone in the world where it's like, no matter what. I mean, I think America does that a lot with China. We just don't understand how big things are over there. And that's, I think that's funny. People joke about everything's bigger in Texas, but it's, it's, there's a saying in Texas, everything's bigger in Texas. They love to say that. It's, it's true to a certain extent, but it's more true of China. But it goes both ways, and yeah. I think that that's correct. Sometimes uh, things are, are downplayed, but sometimes they're they're really upplayed and made more bigger and more larger than life than um, they might actually be in reality. Yeah, I mean, for example, we talk about army sizes in ancient Greece versus army size in the middle medieval period, and they get smaller. And then you go to like England and the army sizes are really small. You got like 300 guys fighting 300 guys, whereas before you're talking about 40,000 and 40,000. And then you go to ancient China or, or not quite so ancient and these army sizes are insane. And that's a perfect example of when the maesters would go, nah, there couldn't have been that many men. There couldn't have been that many people in the army. And they're like, they take it, they, they added a zero and they take a zero off. It's like, <laughs> I don't think so. That yeah. doesn't sound like that would happen. Certainly not here in Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard for people to imagine that many people when they live around so few people. But it's place. Certain places are different. They have more people. So how like how much is that exaggerated? Like the ancient armies of China, when you hear about like half a million sized armies, is like how historically accurate is that? No, the, the, obviously, I think it's a general rule in history. The further back in time you go, the more you have to squint your eyes at the, mm. any numbers that are given. And when we get back to guys like Sima Qian and, and Sun Tzu and, and, and all those numbers that are given in like the art of war and stuff, you're just like, let's just go ahead and knock off a zero <laughs> to be safe. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it's still huge but, even without uh, that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, once once we get to the the period of time that my show's in, which is the the Middle Ming period, which is in the the 1500s, you you take the numbers as given because you figured that mostly people had learned how to count by then, <laughs> and so when they're writing that, oh yeah, the emperor took his 500,000 man army up into Mongolia and was so militarily stupid that they were totally annihilated by 20,000 horse riders. You're like, okay, I'm, I'll, yeah, that that's probably what happened because China has 
a lot of people uh, and it always passed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is so hard to imagine. Like just cause we, yeah. we talk about the logistics of feeding like an even much smaller army and it's, and it's hard to do. And you're like, well, how the heck do they feed that many people? Like the more people you have in one place, the harder it gets that the, the physical, a lot more people, the physical <laughs> logistics don't like multiply in difficulty. It's not just the, well, there's also a lot more villages around. Well, that's true, but still you have this, the, the amount of, it boggles the mind. Yeah. I can't even finish one my sentence. One perspective so I've gotten, <laughs> the toe that I've dipped into looking at Chinese history, one perspective I've gotten is that China is like Europe. The physical size and population is very similar. If Europe had ever been united, which China has been, they might have had a 500,000-person army, okay. right? But they were constantly in all these mm-hmm. little city-states and feudal kingdoms yeah, and such. A, a motif yeah. of Chinese history is emperors uniting everyone. And when you do that, suddenly you have a, a massive amount of power and population to work with for better well, you'll or worse. you get like Rome or Napoleon's Grand Army and you do see exactly what you're talking about, which is, yeah, you could put a really sizable force together as long as they don't stay in the same place for too terribly long <laughs> and they can march under the same banner for long enough. Yeah, and they have ways to get places like Rome, of course, had its famous roads. Yee-T has roads. George was very careful about that. He's like, okay, there's a really impressive road system here that's only, perhaps only beaten by Valerian's road system, which doesn't exist anymore. Well, some parts of it do. So it's probably the best road system in the world in, uh, in Planetos, and that is part of how they were able to manage moving armies quickly from place to place. And of course, those roads are also very helpful for, for trade, things like that. But it would also create just an enormous amount of upkeep having to, to clean, keep, keep these roads clear because most of them run through deep, dense jungles and forests. And that alone would cause all sorts of wear and tear. And I mean, we had a, a minor rainstorm here a few days ago and there were trees all over the place just covering roads. And that's, that's nothing compared to like if it was a jungle, if it was something like that. So yeah, just the amount of upkeep and, and resources. Uh, this is a rich land we're talking about. China in reality, actually went one step uh, further, which is oh, yeah? a lot of roads, sure. But the, the, major, the major thoroughfares, they decided there was going to be canals, which is good for moving large numbers of people. But you, you really got to up, upkeep and, and mm. keep those puppies. It's a lot more of an engineering challenge than a road. Right. And a road is not nothing. So. Oh, yeah. Water is a really <laughs> tough uh, sell. That's another like understanding that I have of China is it, it's almost like it's very central to its history and to its government is managing the water. That like there are multiple floods that have killed millions of people. That it's like a constant part Sometimes of the purpose. history of China is managing yeah. the water flow. Didn't the Mongols do that? They're like they blew up a, a giant. Oh no, that was a that was a common war tactic was to divert a river and make it flood your enemy's city. Some range of Castamere yeah, stuff right there. Exactly. Wow, but on yeah, a much bigger yeah. scale, not just a single castle, but a whole city. Wow. Yikes. Genghis Khan very famously tried to do that in uh, far western China, over near where it's the Taklamakan Desert, and it was a, a country at that point called Western Xia. He tried to flood a city, and the Mongols just did not have the know-how to be able to do that. So they accidentally flooded themselves, <laughs> and there's stories of them standing in chest-high water, just going like, how did this This happen? is fine. Everything's <laughs> uh, normal here. Uh, so that kingdom was actually one of the very, very few places that Genghis Khan did not completely destroy at the time. Eventually he comes back and is like, 
I didn't forget about you. <laughs> Jeez. They were very thorough. But they get a little routine because, well, the, the Mongols, they had to uh, figure out that we're we're garbage at this siege fair. Siege fair. So we will capture Chinese and Koreans and make them do it for us. Wow, that's uh, that is, yeah. that's clever, I guess. Yeah. So there's another question here that George answered a, another question from someone oh, quite a while back. Let's have that. Will POV see any of the places to the east, like E.T., Ashai, etc.? Some, perhaps. I do not subscribe to the theory put forth in The Rough Guide to Fantasyland, a swell book, by the way, that eventually the characters must visit every place shown on the map. And he continues in 2012, There do exist many other cultures and civilizations in my world, to be sure, the peoples of Yi-Ti have been mentioned, as have the Jogos Nai. I am not sure to what extent those peoples will ever enter this present story, however. Their lands are very far away. What a crazy concept in this rough guide to fantasy land, by the way. You have to visit every place on the map? Yeah, that seems Wild. odd. Yeah, just like it's just a very... It's like, a rough guide. Would, it's a rough guide. Yeah. I would say I disagree with that strongly. I would say that every map should have places your characters don't visit. Yeah, that way you keeps you guessing. It gives away too much of the story. I think, yeah, modern readers are a little more... A lot of times more... Figure things out a little more easily. We've all read more stories or whatever. I think I've heard that, that if, if you try to make your world too broad you're, it's only ever an inch deep and uh, it, you really don't really build a, a whole lot of development if you are trying to get everywhere in yeah i guess that could be true I, to some extent i don't know the nature of that book but i wonder if it's maybe advice to writers mm, yeah uh, i mean so. maybe the advice is like don't spend so much time developing this map if your characters aren't going to go there but george is going to take his time no matter what <laughs> so he's going to yeah <laughs> Not a factor for him. <laughs> and of course, there's the at the time when he answered these questions, it's interesting to note. But fast forward to now, I think he would answer these questions differently. Not as they pertain to A Song of Ice and Fire. He would just say more. He would say, yeah, probably not A Song of Ice and Fire. But he would say something along the lines of, there's the future of the franchise to keep in mind. We know now that HBO is developing an animated E.T. show, which is literally all we know about it to this point an animated et show so we can't say more than that not because we aren't allowed to but because we literally don't know but it's a promising sign that the execs at hbo and the very powerful creative people who run all this stuff are even considering it have taken this step to give the project the description to this point and on tv as well besides the idea of an animated show the sea snake Coralie's valarian they're developing a show for him, potentially, especially if his character is a big hit for House of the Dragon. He goes there. His first of famous of his famous nine voyages through the Jade Sea. He hits GT. So they'd be able to put it on screen in, in, in live action, and that could be amazing. It wouldn't be, a, wouldn't be a season one thing, so it's probably a long way out. But it would be incredible. I mean, it made him, it made his family super rich. It, it, it helped them ascend to the point that we see them at House of the Dragon and during the Dance of the Dragon. So, I mean... That's incredible. So, Chris, what about the? I think the equivalent is a trip on the Silk Road, perhaps there and back. And two, like two parts questions, I guess. Is it said that in a? It's said in a Song of Ice and Fire that you could sail the Jade Sea, do one circuit of the Jade Sea, and as long as you have enough investment capital to start with, you can make enough money to retire. Would that have been true in the real world for like a European going to the Silk Road and back with a similar amount of like trade capital, or or vice versa, maybe? Or is that is that something you could even you could even answer? I'm curious, just in general, what you could say about that. 
It, it is pretty true to life wow. in that the, those kind of voyages that you would be able to set up, especially if you could put together and command enough of a sizable fleet to really make it worthwhile. I'm not sure if you could retire forever <laughs> off of a single voyage, but it was certainly worth the months and months at sea to sail around the Horn of Africa once they eventually figured out that that was a thing that you could do oh, yeah. and go all the way to India. And most of what they were uh, interested in was the trade of spices and uh, ceramics and uh, China. Yeah, actual China. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Actual China. Right. Of there course. Of it's course. Right oh. Yeah, exactly. How did I not catch that? Yeah. That's pretty obvious actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. And of course, George mentions silks and spices. He doesn't mention ceramics, I don't think, but he does mention like jade as a big one, which I'm sure that was relevant oh, too. Yeah. Jade is, jade is big as, as well, but it's, that was less of an export oh. as so much as it was a, and is a really precious item here and like for instance there are burial suits which are just entire body tilings of green jade that the richest people in all time were just buried in wow (laughs) jeez that is amazing all that wealth you might get jaded Oh, that's yeah. Not nice. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty cool just to think about that. Like you, you can see why some some people might like back in the day would be like, all I got to do is do this one journey. And if I make it back, yeah. <laughs> you were asking about the Silk Road and the Silk Road is this very convoluted network of just sort of trade routes. Yeah, it isn't you just think one of it thing. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a, it's not, yeah. it's not a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's actually this entire giant desert just sort of, hanging out next to Kazakhstan where you, you couldn't go through it. Oh. You had to one of two ways around it <laughs> uh, because otherwise you die. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Seems like a convincing argument. <laughs> but, but the thing with the thing with a lot of Central Asia, especially is unless you have a really firm control over that ridiculously huge territory there are some some dangers in trying to traverse it so eventually they figure out of well maybe we should just use the ocean instead and that becomes sizably more lucrative because even though it's more expensive to make a fleet and, and sail around the return on investment is is more guaranteed, okay. I guess. And, and, and that's similar here because there is a land route to Yt all the way from like Pentos or the farthest coast from Tyrosh and all that. Well, Tyrosh is an island, maybe not that, but you know, the... There's <laughs> just all those Dundaki in the way. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff in the way. You got big mountains. It's a long, long road. You could get there by land. You get the, the doomed Valyrias in the way. You got a lot of stuff you'd have to get through. It is possible. But yeah, when we hear about people going there, it, it's it's sailing. We see people sailing the Jade Sea Circle. You follow the prevailing winds and it ends up you going along the coast there and then through the bottom and then back. Yeah, that's that's all pretty straightforward in that sense. That's pretty neat. I like to think about that, the huge wealth over there and not just the huge wealth, but the the concept of rarity. You get, you get a whole bunch of stuff that no one has. We're in your part of the world and the markup is pretty ridiculously high. And well, hey, you spent two years going and back. And you can you bring stuff. Yeah. 
you can bring stuff from your part of the world that is relatively mundane that over there will seem exotic. So you get like increased value on both sides. And there is a, a bigger initial uh, startup cost yeah. to, to sailing, but there's, so the average person can't just go do it. But if you can get someone with the wealth for the fleet to go, there's less risk along the way. Like when you're carrying all these valuable goods, you're in the middle of the water, it's less there's likely. There's less pirates than there are, like bandits you, and all that. Then yeah. are bandits, exactly. <laughs> You can at least put guns on your ship. That <laughs> That's <can> true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the first time Yee-T is mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's Danny Three, A Game of Thrones. Viserys had told her that the last Targaryen dragons had died no more than a century and a half ago during the reign of Aegon III, who is called the Dragonbane. That did not seem so long ago to Danny. Everywhere, she said, disappointed, even in the East? Magic had died in the West when the doom fell on Valyria and the lands of the long summer, and neither spell forged steel nor storm singers nor dragons could hold it back. But Danny had always heard that the East was different. It was said that manticores prowled the islands of the Jade Sea, that basilisks infested the jungles of Yi Ti that spell singers, warlocks, and aromancers practiced their arts openly in Ashai, while shadowbinders and blood mages worked terrible sorceries in the black of night. Why shouldn't there be dragons, too? Now, that's a lot of world building in one passage, but Yi-Ti is pretty <laughs> prominent there, and some of the stuff that Danny has heard just is the perspective of a fairly young person who has only been told these things by her brother, and maybe a few other people she's heard from here and there. But it turns out to be pretty accurate. It's vague, which is reasonable for the situation. There are basilisks in E.T. There are warlocks and spell singers and aromancers in Ashai. So basically, Avatar the Last Airbender is in Ashai? <laughs> Apparently, yes. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but she's, it's a good question. Any wonder if, it being so early in the, in the story, George is setting up the history and origins and relevance, plot relevance for dragons. I think that's the thing that's most important here for, for the plot is the part about dragons. And she refers to, well, where else could dragons be? Where could they be alive still? Where could they have existed before? Where could we have originated from? Things like that. And Yi Ti is right in on that list. It belongs, it belongs as a option or possible answer for all those questions. It's possibly a place where dragons are or were. It's connected to places that they definitely were. And there's, bloodlines that may connect to E.T. as well. We've even got an example later of an emperor who had, who married a Valyrian nobleman and had a dragon at his court. So if that's a story, then there's got to be other possibilities, especially if we go back even farther in time. So that's pretty cool. Ashai, Aegon III, E.T., all mentioned in this early chapter. See, George was thinking about these things really early on. It's not one of these things that he added later. He filled it out later, but it was there from the beginning. I noticed doing a search of ice and fire that there were, I'm not going to marry exact numbers, but maybe 15 or 20 total mentions of E.T. through the main books. Yeah. And half of them or more were in the first book. They were almost yeah. all like in Dana chapters from a Game of Thrones and like one or two more in each of the other books. Right he, I, I think we've seen that in some other areas too, that he was doing some very broad world building and zeroed in on certain characters or plots or locations. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's how I would say it too, pretty much, Sean. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, point. <laughs> now, Eerie says, no dragon, brave men kill them all. That's how she responds to this, this, this question, this quote that Shea read. But there have been dragons in Yi-Ti, as we'll see. So stick with me. 
It'll be easy. Oh. (laughs) Nina says, (laughs) hey, Saturday night, we get a little loopier here. Nina says, I like this quote for the way in which it frames E.T. as well as the other places Danny thinks of as supernatural, but also accessible. There really are basilisks in E.T., just as there are manticores and shadowbinders elsewhere in the world. Danny even goes on to see a basilisk fight in Karth in A Clash of Kings. So E.T. isn't just steeped in legend and myth. It's real, but its magical and supernatural elements are and at least at some point were real or if they aren't anymore. Now, here's the first mention of the World of Ice and Fire in the World of Ice and Fire of E.T., in the world of ice and fire. And it's during the discussion of the variations on Azor Ahai, like the different forms that he or she may have taken if there were multiple Azor Ahai. So this is the Yeetish version. Sorry, real quick before I read this, I wanted to add another thing I perceived about George's presentation of E.T. In addition to what Nina said, which I think is good, but also that it's far away. She's already far away from home and E.T. is even farther away. Uh, I think that was also... You're right. I I think a couple times Drawer brought it up as a a place we could go. Like when things are falling apart, we're called Drogo or whatever. We could go to E.T. I'll take care of you. you yeah, Jorah does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's all about that. Yeah. <laughs> he mentions it a few times. Yeah, because I think George was, you're right. It's, it's interesting to consider that in the light of the phrase, to go forward, you must go back. And uh, whether that's both literal and metaphorical, which is, I think, how a lot of people land that it's both literal and metaphorical. So literally, she has to go farther east to understand her own origins. The Azor High prophecy emanates farther east than she ever goes. She never goes farther than Karth. But George did seem to originally plan to have her go to Eshai, then he changed his mind. So maybe he, he's hinted that maybe we'll see it in flashbacks through Melisandre instead. But hmm. that opens the pause. Melisandre couldn't have gone straight from Eshai to somewhere else without passing by Yi-T, you would think. So maybe there's maybe there's other opportunities for it to be seen in memory. or something Don't like underestimate that. Melisandre. Yeah. <laughs> I never would. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's have this quote, Sean. All right, let's do the quote. In the Jade Compendium, Colloquial Votar recounts a curious legend from E.T., which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, and that disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. Uh Uh-huh, a woman, you say. The monkey-tailed hats come up several times in A Game of Thrones when she's at the Western Market at Vase Dothrak. We see the Yeetish people with that. It's like a fashion thing there, but but it's more than fashion because it, it relates to this important deed in their history. So it's something that clearly has lingered for a very long time because that would have been a hugely long time ago. Are there a lot of monkeys in China, like kept as pets or in zoos, or I'm not really clear on that? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys put this quote in, especially because there's there's actually just a, a couple things that stuck out to me whenever I, I read through this, oh, cool. which is, okay, so number one, the the monkey's tail immediately it pops out to me. It's probably a reference to the monkey king, Sun Wukong, oh. and the idea of this heroic, godlike, semi-human creature named Sun Wukong who has fantastical magic powers. And basically his whole story is about a thousand chapters of him saving the day over and over again. And so it's I think that the inclusion of it being a woman with a monkey's tail is a conscious inclusion of that legend. And maybe to people, maybe you don't know him as Sun Wukong, maybe you know him as Goku from Dragon Ball Z. It's the same character. Oh, really? I did not know that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's cool. (laughs) Y'all didn't expect to learn something about Dragon Ball Z today, did you? (laughs) He is a Buddhist master and becomes a living Buddha. Uh, (laughs) He just goes around having adventures all the time. The other thing is the idea of the climate being a reference to what we do as 
individuals and as society, as in, as in the sun hid its face for a lifetime and it was ashamed of something that none could discover. And a big part of the idea of what we'd call the mandate of heaven, which is the imperial right to rule in imperial China, was associated with uh, divination of the seasons hmm. and of being able to properly predict and um, forecast when's the right time to plant, when's the right time to harvest. And if you mess that up or if there were major natural disasters that could sometimes seem to last for generations, you very quickly had several hundreds of thousands of people saying, I don't think you should wear the fancy hat anymore. You don't have um, the mandate of heaven anymore, right? That, that's basically <laughs> the idea? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really neat. Yeah, we really, that that's definitely something I wasn't aware of. That's very informative and, and super relevant here for sure. I'll bring something up from the chat here where Tommy and Scott W. point out that our own Amy Blackfire, Amy Landtrip, has written um, an essay about Monkey King parallels to Tyrion. Oh, um, right so on. if anyone's looking for a little more about this subject, uh, I'd ch check out Amy Blackfire. Um, right on, a yeah. E-M-Y. Amy, friend of the show, for sure. Check her out. Yeah, and, and expanding on the idea of Tyrion, just real quickly, I had some notes here on that myself because, of course, if you think of Danny as a woman, the woman who is with the monkey's tail, the, the equivalent for this story, why would Tyrion be relevant here? Well, the monkey's tail, we've mentioned a few times, but I added a few extra details to this. Tyrion is referred to as a monkey demon very early on in his role acting as a hand of the king, and he, it sticks with him. He's, he's kind of like, he laughs it off, but it clearly bothers him because he repeats it to himself many times throughout the story, like internally. And Tywin also says, you were born a lion, not a monkey. To him when he does his when he like did that acrobatic thing on the table that one day when he was really young and the widow of the waterfront says he looks like a monkey <laughs> so there's he's referred to as a monkey by himself by this weird random person this rider by tywin by the widow of the waterfront and if he ends up as danny's like her hand to the king it's like tails at a hand i don't know if any of that maybe i'm maybe that's a reach but still he one of her advisors so in in any case so that that seems to fit whether that's what george had in mind or not it, it does fit <laughs> i'll also just uh point out one other thing that just popped in my head as you were mentioning Tyrion and, and bringing up his his story arc which is that one of the major aspects of his character development is that he is physically changed yeah true and the one of the one of the major powers of the monkey king is that he is first and foremost a shapeshifter oh. and he can change his, his aspect at oh. will. And of course with Tyrion, it's not by will, but it's interesting. That's just, he switches I don't know, sides, probably, he switches uh, names. He does like, in a sense, he does those things. It's different. It's not straight shape changing, but you're right. It is a little more metaphorical, but you're right. That's totally present. That's really cool. Nice. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nina's note on on the myth of the long night here. She says, interestingly, I think this is the only myth of the long night that specifically identifies a woman as the apocalyptic hero. Even the Roinar legend refers to the children of Mother Roin coming together to save the day. Not Mother Roin herself. This also is probably the hero we know the least about. We don't even know. We don't know what the deeds are. You know, right? What, what did she do? It's, it's pretty vague. But I think that's part of George leaving it open. And, and this, again, what you said before, Chris, it wouldn't necessarily make a lot of sense for the maesters this far away to have such strong detail on, on these specific, especially these really ancient deep cuts. <laughs> like this would be, this would be serious scholar business right here. Even like the, even like a regular Yeetish peasant would know a lot of this stuff. They would know some of it, but. So this next text is called, Lots of People Want Her to Go There. <laughs> so this is talking about Danny. This is early on, we already talked about how Jorah tries to bring up E.T. as a place they can run away to. Right up to the moment before she jumps on the pyre, he's still talking about, let's go to E.T. Just uh, don't jump in the fire. Early on, he's just like, run away with me. Then he's like, also don't jump in the fire. Like, run away with me, <laughs> but also don't do that. But she's like, look. Please don't immolate yourself. Yeah, but well, that would be... It, it's, it's not the first of many times. It's the first of, not the first, or maybe the first, but one of the more outstanding moments where it d- seems like Danny is doing something wrong and it works out really well. And George's like, well, you, dang, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that one most of all, though. Because <laughs> most of us would have probably felt like George, like, no, this is not going to, why would you, don't do that. <laughs> all right, never mind. You, you birth dragons. Okay. Uh, what do I know? <laughs> But the more flowery, eloquent example comes from Zara Zoandaxos when he tries to convince her. And this quote is just bonkers. Let this be your kingdom, most exquisite of queens, and let me be your king. I will give you a throne of gold if you like. When Karth begins to pall, we can journey to E.T. and search for the dreaming city of the poets to sip wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull. What the heck does that mean? Sean the... is intimately acquainted with the idea of sipping wine from skulls. I've seen him drink out of a skull many times, true. I you have, have to say. That was a Thanksgiving tradition for <laughs> 10 years or so. <laughs> yeah, we had a Thanksgiving tradition here, Chris, where we had a skull. It wasn't a human skull. It was, well... <laughs> Maybe Don't it's a human that. skull. Maybe. Okay, it's a human skull. It was a human skull. <laughs> and people would just actual person. People would pour wine into it and drink it out, drink out of it and pass it around. There's we definitely have photos of this. <laughs> That's fantastic. But I don't think anyone got wisdom from it. It certainly wasn't the wine of wisdom. But I mean, you probably felt wiser at the time. <laughs> wine does make you feel you you aren't wiser, but you feel wiser, yeah. Dream, dreaming city of Excuse me. Dreaming City of the Poets. What is that? Is that a reference to something or is that just something sounds cool? I don't know. Or is that? Yeah. Well, I have an idea. I don't know if it's accurate. (laughs) So this sounds to me similar enough to the poem by Yeats, I think, about Shangdu or Xanadu, which was the city built by Kublai Khan, which was, I mean, he was in a complete opium haze the entire time he wrote that thing. So it's totally bizarre. And it has very little to do with reality. Mm-hmm. Xanadu was just the largest trading post that was mostly made out of felt tents. 
And I mean, not to give felt tense a bad name, they're comfortable places to live, don't get me wrong. But in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, and it goes on from there. But it, it sounds very poetic, like the yeah, dreaming city. Okay. That's a good and call. the idea of uh, drinking from a dead man's skull, that's not really a Mongol thing, and it's not a Chinese thing, mostly. But it is more of a Scythian thing. And I think that there's a lot of conflation there. The, there's the very famous queen of the Scythians, um, Tamiris. Yes, that's her. She found the king's head in some bag of wine or something and then turned his head into a cup. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and George borrowed that anecdote or something like it because there was a Yeetish emperor who led, the 42nd Scarlet Emperor led a big expedition into the Jogosnai, who are a combination of Scythians and Mongols and Huns and all these other steppe peoples. And he wasn't very successful. And then his son tried even harder, wiped, killed a lot of Jogos Nai, but ultimately failed even harder than his father because he was killed. And to this day, when a new Jot is named, which is like a chief, they drink from Khan. this guy's skull. Yeah, it's basically a con. They drink from this guy's skull as part of the commemoration. So they keep his skull and it's gilded. So it's also a little bit like, well, that's, I guess, you know, it's, Cyrus, it's for yeah. really special purposes. Is it, You dip it in gold. and uh, that's, that's a, I would drink out of a golden skull. A regular one? Pff, no. I'm, <laughs> Come on, we have I wonder if there's a little metaphor to like sipping the wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull, like learning, like reading the writing, like a skull, the, like, like they're things that they wrote when they were alive and you're taking kind of taking it in what I don't know a little maybe a little metaphor from ancient wisdom in there but that's just my imagination perhaps Nina says interesting that Zaro also says they can search for the city the implication perhaps being that it's not known or easy to find it adds to the mystery and mystique of ET the idea of a fabled land within a fabled land a place considered almost mythical even within the content of this semi-storied place that's yeah it is like right like what you're saying with with the with Xanadu, it, it is kind of like this far away. China's this far away place that Samuel Coleridge Taylor's audience is not going to know much about. Most of they've heard is going to be fanciful, and so he's and he's just fancifying it even more. <laughs> oh, or there's the rush Taylor, version, I, which is I, just I, as I, fancy. I was, I was dead wrong. Thank you for the correcting me there. <laughs> Wait, for which one? That was it. Was that it was Samuel Taylor Col- uh, Coleridge? Oh, you just happened to not Yates. Just, oh, you yeah. said yeah. I didn't even remember. I didn't even realize you said that. Okay, well that's cool. Yeah, all right. <laughs> nice. And Nina says also this description sounds a, a bit of like a romanticized version of the House of the Undying, the the dreaming of poets, the wine of the warlocks, rather than the wine. Like ah, that's a pretty good idea. Okay, let's get um into Yt a little more properly. Some of the like geography and things like that. Here's another quote. Shea. Only the broadest outlines of the histories of the further east are known to the Citadel, and even in those tales that have come west to us over long leagues of mountains and deserts, there are many omissions, gaps, and contradictions, making it all but impossible to say with any certainty what portion is true and what portion has arisen from the fevered imaginings of singers, storytellers, and wet nurses. <laughs> Yet the oldest and greatest of the Eastern civilizations endures to our present day, the ancient, glorious, golden empire of E.T. Fancy, but seems like it's a deserved set of titles there. Nina says it reminds her of, of that bit from Marco Polo that I mentioned at the beginning, playing down what he saw because he didn't think people would believe it. 
interesting to compare to, say, Herodotus, who's a, a lot of things in Herodotus, who was one of the first historians, if not the first historian, at least in the West. And people, for a long time, things that he wrote, people were like, nah, that can't, that's not, that's not right. But, but over time, a, several of the things he said that people were like, nah, it's not right, have come back around. Like, actually, he was right about that. So it gives it a certain photo accuracy. Like Nina's example of a fabled land within a fabled land, that's the effect we have here. We have rumors going through rumors, like the telephone game. The farther it stretches, the more inaccurate it gets, the more wild. Because people tend to, storytellers, you, you tend to exaggerate rather than downplay. That's just the general rule of things. Most people would rather, what? yeah, what? Nah. Nah, come on. <laughs> Let's the next quote will set us up really well because this is this gets into a little more detail and it's just a, a bombshell of an idea in terms of showing the scale of this place. It also has some big name drops. The cities of ET are far famed as well, for no other land can boast so many. If Lomas Longstrider can be believed, none of the cities of the West compare to those of ET in size and splendor. Even their ruins put ours to shame, the Longstrider <laughs> said, and ruins are everywhere in ET. In his J Compendium, Loco Votar, the best source available in Westeros on the lands of the Jade Sea, wrote that beneath every Etish city, three older cities lie buried. Jeez. I mean, we talk about Old Town as like the oldest city in Westeros, but it doesn't really have multiple older versions. Older Town. Older Town. Yeah, these are older towns. <laughs> this seems a lot older. Is this roughly said about China as well or something like this said about China or is this more George's just making it only cool? three ruins underneath the current city? That seems a little light. <laughs> Come on, what, is your city only 800 years old? <laughs> so it should be more. <laughs> well, they, didn't, they don't have archaeology in Lomas Longstrider's time, so he's just guessing. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you start looking at some of the, the major cities in China, and so for instance, like Beijing or, or Nanjing, and they've been there for forever. And you start looking through the list of names and it goes into the dozens of the Whoa. things they've been called dozens. in the past. <laughs> three, that's three. So yeah, three dozen. There's an entire portion of my show where it's just like, so we're in Nanjing right now, but at the time it was called this other thing. <laughs> but that was after it was called this third thing. And <laughs> So there's whether it's a different city or not, or whether it's name changed, or whether it's like all these figuring out of different, like, which is which, yeah. Okay. You kind of have to check your sources. You're like, am I, are we where I think we are? <laughs> Chinese archaeology sounds hard. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's another example of just everything's bigger in China. Even the archaeology is bigger by these scales. I mean, because we obviously don't have, like, there are, there's only one, like, I, I live in, me and Ashea live in Atlanta here. There's, like, one prior Atlanta. It was burned in the Civil War, and then it was rebuilt. And that's that's pretty much it, I think. <laughs> so we got one prior version. And there's still some buildings from that pre previous version here. There's, like, a church or two that weren't burned down. So we've even got we've even got some of the originals still, <laughs> so much smaller. And those are uh, 150 years old. Yeah, wow, like, ooh, 150. <laughs> that's old, but not compared to this. That's nothing. That's like a day. Sometimes I have to pause and, and remember that that Shanghai, where I live, is sort of a relatively newish city in China. It's it's not that storied or ancient. I mean, it's it's humongous, but uh, there are places that are older, and it's like. Oh, so how old are we talking about? How new is it? You're like, oh, it's like 800. Yeah, no, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the, a little more about what's the layout of, of Yi There's lots, like we said before, there's lots of jungles and farms. We talked about the roads as sort of a, a core feature of, of it, its connectivity. Mm -hmm. Lots of farms as well. Must be got to feed all those people somehow. 
But there's a few few interesting ideas of of animals and, and other features. Like there's some sort of strange horse-like creature that they bred with horses to make zorses. So sounds like a zebra, really, if you go from horse to zorse. I guess that's it's probably the idea, roughly. Nina writes, quaggas is another possibility. I've never heard of a quagga, but she, she says zebra or quagga. So it must be a zebra-like creature. Okay. Hmm. Gonna, oh, I gotta look this up. I feel like I might have heard of that, but I can't. It looks like a small zebra to oh, me. I don't okay. know that it is small. Zebra, it, just, like it just looks like that. I don't know that it actually is small, but huh. it, it just looks like a, a less zebra-like zebra. <laughs> that, that's one of the things that I, I found very unbelievable about the the description of, of ET is the idea of using zorses as mounts because oh, I've been in close enough contact with zebras. No, they're really jerks <laughs> and don't like zebras. Really? <laughs> I guess that's well, if why. If you breed them with horses, then you get a Zors, and that's like the best of both worlds. You get the <laughs> see all the jerkiness of the zebra and all the and the, and the rideability of a horse. Yeah, <laughs> just all the all the personality of a really ornery donkey. Uh, <laughs> it depends on how it comes out. If it's more zebra, they call it a zebrors, and if it's more of a yeah. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> now that we mentioned basilisks and monkeys, there's, there's got to be a lot of other interesting creatures that just haven't been named yet. Some things that we'll see. The maesters don't know about this. Lang has tigers and huge apes. Lang is an island nearby, and it's more like maybe Korea-ish, Japan-ish, vaguely. Uh, we'll talk. It, it deserves its own episode. We'll talk about this another time. It's not clear if tigers and huge apes are on the mainland. Also, you'd think they probably would be, but. Again, won't make that assumption, but it seems pretty likely, especially the tigers part. I'm less sure about the apes. But the farthest east we've gone, of course, like I said, is Karth. And that sits on the west side of the Bone Mountains. Yeeti is almost everything in between the Bone Mountains all the way to the Shadowlands, with the exception of the northern zone there. The, the plains of the Jogosnai is, is above them or north of them. And that occupies a similar stretch of land, but again, in the north. So if you're traveling east through the bone through the Bone Mountains, let's say you're Danny, and instead of going west, let's say she goes east instead, she'd cross the Bone Mountains immediately after that she'd be in the, the area that contains Asabad and the cities that used to be the patrimony of Hercoon, Samiriana, Bayasabad, and Kayakayanaya. And then you get to E.T. So it's pretty big, but I think relative to Earth, it's smaller than China. Like China's, I guess, the second largest country in the world in terms of land area, I think. I think it's Russia's the only one bigger. And then the largest in terms of population. Obviously, we don't know how big ET is in terms of population. It sounds pretty big. But in terms of size, I think it's probably only 40% the size of Westeros, roughly. But I'm, I'm just guesstimating. And of course, the borders have changed over time. Like Chris said, with the cities, it's not always, it's not a monolith. It's not the same size at all times, given their lack of control over neighboring regions or neighboring regions maybe controlling them a little bit. Yeah. Love to highlight the thing that Nina put in the document, Aziz. What's that? Nina put a, a Simpsons reference in the document. Oh. And we, Aziz references Lang has huge apes, but it's not clear if those are on the mainland. And Nina put as a comment that I really almost made me laugh out loud here. We're going to Ape Island. Yeah, to capture a giant ape. I wish we were going to Candy Apple Island. Candy <laughs> Apple Island? What have they got there? Apes, but they're not so big. I just, I just this is really good, Nina. You got me. Surprise, uh, Simpsons. The Simpsons have had a lot of good ape-related jokes, haven't they? <laughs> I hate every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you'll never make a monkey out of me. Okay, back to Yee T. I've done that twice this episode. So yeah, pretty big, but you know, not maybe not as big as China is relative to the real world. But it is, it's got a lot of structural similarities. You think of China and look at what's to the north. A great plains full of nomadic steppe horse riders. That's exactly what Yee T has with the Jogos Nye. And then immediately to the west, you have a sort of Arabian Middle Eastern-y land, Arabic-ish or Middle Eastern, and that's the same to that's what's directly east of China or west of China, maybe a little farther west. You got like India, which is maybe skipped over here. There's no, maybe there isn't an India analog here, but still the Silk Road is, is the, would be passing through there. And instead you have the Sand Road, but also the Steel Road and the Stone Road because George, you know, likes to go bigger, but it's pretty similar there. And, and Lang is very closed, which is sort of like Japan uh, in certain parts of his history. S- certain parts of history, very like Japan was very closed. And just off the coast with a back and forth history with the mainland, which is stuff we'll get in more into Lang because there's more to say about Yi than Lang. So we'll save that stuff for Lang. Another interesting mm-hmm. geographical feature is the shrinking sea to the north that sounds a lot like the Silver Sea because it was a huge lake that's now just a few small ones. There's a big dust bowl in northern China, right? Is that, was there a sea there ancient in ancient time, prehistoric times? Or is that, what's the, is there an equivalent here, an analog? The big dust bowl you're talking about, that is the desertification moving south out of the Gobi. So there's not a giant lake there. It is having to do largely with bad industrialization practices oh. and not really taking adequate care of the environment. And it just being an arid place in general okay. as uh, Earth's climate continues to shift. And so that really does mean that cities in the north, like Beijing, get sandstorms with seasonal regularity. The closest thing I'm thinking of to the... I'm sorry, what was the name of the sea again? It was the Silver Sea? The the Shrinking Sea here, and the Silver Sea was in, was, was in central, was used to be the Dothraki Sea. So here, but here in UT, north of UT is the Shrinking Sea. The biggest inland body of water in China is called uh, Qinghai, which means like the, the turquoise sea. And it is a fresh body of water and it's not shrinking, uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of right smack dab in the middle of China and quite the tourist attraction that really is quite lovely. Hmm. It's referred nice. to as the turquoise sea for looks and not because of any sort of turquoise trade that went on or Yeah, it's just it's just the the color of the water is just this nice blue green tealish color, and that's just what they call it. I wonder if George got the idea for the Jade Sea from that, which is an ocean, real more properly, but still, could be could be the the inspiration. Other than that, or or maybe the maybe the Yellow Sea. Oh, okay, sure. That would that would fit. Yeah, that sounds better. There's also the in north of Yi the Great Sand Sea. It's a gigantic desert canyon of sorts, and that might be more like the desertification thing that you were talking about. Michael Clarfeld's rendition of it on the map. The Sand Sea is probably most analogous to the Taklamakan, which is in Xinjiang. So it's in the very far west of China. It's right on the border of like Kazakhstan and, Afghaz- and Afghanistan. And it actually has the second largest sandy dune portion of desert in the world right after the Sahara. Oh, okay. Nice. Right on. Looks like a correction was was thrown at us here. China is third largest by size. Canada is technically larger by size, but of course, nowhere near in population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Blame Canada. That was, Can- that was Canadians sneaking in there <laughs> with their large country. <laughs> so if we see future projects in this land, the Great Sand Sea or the Shrinking Sea would be pretty spectacular things to put on TV or to, just to give us a, a visual of. So maybe we'll get to see that. I would say moving on, but wait. This next quote says we're not done with this part yet. No discussion of E.T. would be complete without a mention of the Five Forts, a line of hulking ancient citadels that stand along the far northeastern frontiers of the Golden Empire between the Bleeding Sea, named for the characteristic hue of its deep waters, supposedly a result of a plant that grows only there, and the Mountains of Morn. The Five Forts are very old, older than the Golden Empire itself. Some claim they were raised by the Pearl Emperor during the morning of the Great Empire, to keep the Lion of Night and his demons from the realms of men. And indeed, there is something godlike or demonic about the monstrous size of the forts, for each of the five is large enough to house 10,000 men, and their massive walls stand almost 1,000 feet high. So there's also something hyperbolic about those. <laughs> they sound, but is but are they? Feet. Is this the China? Is this the everything is too big in China exaggeration? Or yeah. no, it really is that big. It's is this like a he's George is sort of towing that line. Whether it is could it really be that big? Well, maybe, but it sounds too big. <laughs> Being very Tolkienish in this of like that was the Great Watchtower yeah. that once existed. Uh, I think this has got to be either exaggerations of the tales and or just some mystical uh, aliens or something or or maybe george doesn't understand how tall a thousand feet so <laughs> one of those <laughs> he really likes tall he does things. he does like tall because that's like the two biggest pyramids stacked on top of each other <laughs> and there's five of them and they're one solid black stone right and they're not a bunch of brick stone, so like uh it's pretty impossible so chris is this supposed this is an analog for the great wall i suppose right something like that i guess it's I, see, I think, right? It feels like it's, there's a lot of substantial differences here, but there's like a big fort that blocks the people from the north or some ancient enemy from the north. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Great Pole. Nobody would ever think about the Great Wall when they think of China. So that was a really... <laughs> <laughs> totally obscure <laughs> reference there. Like the Great what? Uh, very few people know about this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever heard of it. Uh, no, no, no. It, that... that it's completely an analog. And the thing with the Great Wall is, of course, the wall gets all the credit, but what did it actually do? It was just sort of a way to link together watchtowers and forts to just sort of look out north and say that throat singing sounds pretty threatening. The great It's almost as much a road as a wall, right? It's, it's, it gives the ability to travel along pretty swiftly. Yeah, yeah, you you can do that. I've, I've done a little part of it and it's uh, it's not easy it, it is really going up over the tops of mountains and stuff oh. and sometimes you, you're sort of going up this staircase and then the staircase just sort of turns into a cliff and the tower's up there and you're just like so you you just we're just gonna cliff now that's a um, lot of nope <laughs> it's nuts but it's made in purpose as the idea of a watchtower presupposes is that they would have these braziers ready to go and if the mongols come riding down to be uh raiding as they are wont to do you you light the fire and uh let everybody know that it's time to get the spears ready wow yeah that's pretty cool i like it let's move on to uh myths and religion and here's another quote from shea in the beginning the priestly scribes of yin declare 
all the land between the bones and the freezing desert called the Gray Waste, from the Shivering Sea to the Jade Sea, including even the great and holy Isle of Lang, formed a single realm ruled by the god on earth, the only begotten son of the Lion of Night and maiden made of light, who traveled about his domains in a palanquin carved from a single pearl and carried by a hundred queens, his wives. For 10,000 years, the great empire of the dawn flourished in peace and plenty under the god on earth until at last he ascended to the stars to join his forebears. He made his wives carry him around? Like, geez, this guy. But I guess it he's probably wasn't much fancy. work of the hundred of them. Yeah. <laughs> this is somewhat akin to the stories regarding the Silver Sea and the Fisher Queens, or to a lesser extent, some of the Age of Heroes tales. But it's even more epic, even more supernatural, I suppose. Does this have any sort of resonance with Chinese founding myths or beliefs or anything? Does this, does this strike any? Is this, or is this just... Well, definitely not the palanquins carved out of a single pearl. That's new. Um, That's a big-ass pearl. They used at least four or five pearls in real China. <laughs> Imagine the clam. That's, I mean, <laughs> you need a five-fort-sized clam for a pearl. That big. <laughs> yeah, in terms of, of beginning stories or the idea of the, the writ of rule, the terminology for the emperor of China was was the son of heaven mm. or Di. So this literal appointee from the gods who is there to mostly keep calendars, but also rule over everybody. But it's mostly the calendars. <laughs> and so the iteration of the lion of night and the maiden made of light, that's, I think, in just... That's that's a fun story, but that's not really... There aren't many lions super... or anything like that. I mean, we hear more about tigers, is my understanding. That was actually going to be a question I have later, so let's, let's talk about that now. Okay, so let me set this up briefly. Lions don't exist in China. Lions also don't exist in England. And their lions are all over England in terms of sigils. And Nina did a little research on that. It's mostly because of lions were a big deal in ancient Greece and in Rome and in the Bible. So they're just... This, that was carried forward in European history and Western history. So it's interesting to think about that as like a, a, a consideration where lion is the most real of a lot of these fanciful sigils that you'll see in, in say, ancient England, where there would also be griffins and, of course, dragons. But China also uses dragons and lions. But to them, the, the lion is similar-ish to the dragon or to the same to the lion in England in that it's real, but it's not something they would ever see. So it's, it's, it's quasi-mythical because you, would, you only... And they might think dragons existed somewhere else, too. They might think they were real, even if they weren't. Opposite ends of the wor- yeah. of the earth, similar belief, similar animal used in the same kind of way, mythically. So Lion of Night here is an interesting idea because... Well, yeah, no, the, the, the thing with, with lions and their importation into East Asia is really an interesting story and probably similarly interesting to how lions came to be existing in the cultural mythos of, of England. But it actually came about in the, the Tang Dynasty, so from about the 7th to 10th centuries. And the imperial family of the Tang Dynasty was actually these sort of, it's hard to say half, but semi-Chinese, semi-Turks hmm. who'd come in from the north and from the west. And some of them very famously would just refused to learn Chinese and refused to speak to the common people and they would only speak their own language. And some of them, there's one prince in particular who 
made all of the ministers at court very mad because he wouldn't play along with the sort of the the fake family history that oh no that the Lees have always been Chinese and they've always been here and don't leave and listen to that Turkish rabble because he would only wear Central European style clothing he would only live in a yurt and he would never speak Chinese wow and just refused to even deign to try and you can Um, see how successful that strategy was his family still (laughs) rules today (laughs) you don't really want to make those people uh, super angry Uh, (laughs) yep Mm. lions came as an import from like persia and central asia and then became such a part of sort of cultural ideology that that every year on uh this holiday we eat this little dumpling filled with sesame um paste and lions guys in a lion suit dance and and uh, do really acrobatic maneuvers interesting (laughs) and you're like why are they lions in china and that's why (laughs) (laughs) So we'll have to do a deeper dive on the maiden made of light and the lion of night some other time. But I just thought it was interesting to bring it up in this context with the with the lion as a as a idea that's not semi mythical to people of China, and it's similar here as well. Because as far as we know, there's no lions in Yiti either. So this this god lion of night is an interesting personification of a a beast that to us is, seems real, but to them would be a lot more mythical. And, and as the quote says, the whether the maiden made of light and the lion of night were like friends or whether they had a relationship or not is unclear. It's sort of, it's just like he made her pregnant. It was like, well, how willing was she in this? But they did seem to work together, at least in terms of the long night where she turned her back on humanity and that, un- that turning of her back unleashed her partner or just enabled the lion of night to do his thing. And so that's where we get stories about the, the demons coming from even farther east that the, that the five forts were possibly designed to fight back against. Nina says, it's curious that the Lion of Night seems to have both God and demon to the Yeechish people, like a sort of like a Satan thing where it is, or the storm God, maybe. That's neat. Uh, with, with a lot of Eastern mythology, the deities or spirits, they're not necessarily benevolent mm. or evil. They're deeply apathetic towards human morality in general. Uh. And so they just do what they do. They're, they're forces of nature that you can try to appease, you can try to give offerings to and try to get them on your side, but they're not your buddy <laughs> and they never will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but isn't that, it's, it's fascinating that the emperors of Yi-T and the Golden Empire, they, and the Great Empire supposedly, draw their descent from the line of night, which you usually don't see that. So the emperors say this is our great, great, great grandfather, this lion of night. It's like we descend from this demon, which is, that's a little unusual to, to claim descent from a demon. Like the, these other examples where we yeah. have a, like a, a dark sort of analog, like Satan or the, or the storm God, I said, no one claims descent from them. <laughs> I, I, part of me thinks that that might be a, maybe an on-purpose translational quirk mm-hmm. of the stories in Yiddish being translated into Westerosi and how that, as we see in, in reality, sometimes the gods of a culture are retranslated into demons and evilness mm-hmm. uh, when they are culturally uh, re 
retold. Uh, that's a great point. A different setting. Oh, yeah, totally that's a really that good we point. shouldn't just assume that the Westerosi perspective on what the Nietzsche perspective is is correct yeah. on on these, on these people. True. Yeah, these figures. I thought of them as two sides of the same coin. I think it's like hmm. the Lord of Light. Yeah, you know, yeah, I kind of see that as well. If you're descended uh, from one, you're from the other. One is demonic, but one is okay. good, I guess. Although, again, no one kind of declares descent from the Lord of Light either, but that's a super old deity too. But the concept of duality and of light and darkness existing in co-equal re- relationship with each other, I mean, that's that's Yang. a core set of Taoism yeah. and uh, Confucian philosophy. And so it, it would make a lot of sense that if you're basing a culture on on this paradigm then it would have that central idea of light and darkness both mm. existing together that's a great call yeah i think that that does really fit really well when you lay it out like that you're right it's more of an acceptance of that that's a real these things are real you're not you're not fighting against them maybe you are but you you're not denying that they are just as much a part of existence as the stuff you might call good or see as positive. That's really neat. Uh, that's a great, a great take. Uh, also, some, can I point out real yeah, quick? Yeah, go ahead. The Christian religion is based on descent from Adam, the original sinner, right? Like Adam and Eve sinned and we all came from them. Oh, and, uh, that's a good point. Out of it? I, I don't know that, but it's worth noting. Okay. You know? Yeah, that's a good call. The duality exists there as well of, of in Christianity, you have, uh, God the creator, and then there's also Lucifer or Satan who exists in kind of perpetual opposition there. Two last short points about lions here. One is, does this, would any of this relate to the concept of the guardian lion, which I guess is a, a thing from like a, a statue kind of thing you see around China, like a symbolic thing? I don't know much about those, but Nina included in the notes, I thought we'd ask you about that. Yeah, the, but... The the guardian lion, some of them are honest-to-goodness lions, but a lot of what is, are seen as lions is if you look at them closely, some of them have cloven hoofs, oh. and some of them have so sort of the <laughs> unicorn spikes on their yeah. on their faces, and those are actually a cryptid that's called Pichio. Ooh. And Pichio is a minor god, a minor deity, who is a ferocious protector mm. who guards the home and the family, but most of all, he guards your money. And <sighs> that stems from the beginning of time when Pichio, being the naughty little dragon puppy thing that he is, ate the, ate the, the food off of the Jade Emperor of Heaven's dining table when he wasn't supposed to. Hmm. And so as a punishment, the Jade Emperor decided to seal up his anus for all eternity yeah. and make him only able to eat gold, silver, and precious things like that so that he would only ever be able to accumulate wealth. But never spend it. Oh, my goodness. That's it a metaphor. It took a turn there, but for a minute I thought that sounded like Eve eating the apple, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely went another direction. Yeah, it took a turn, one way <laughs> to put it. Weird, it took a weird monetary turn, yeah. <laughs> so with the, with the lions we've talked about a good bit here, what about tigers? Like tigers are actually native to the area, or at least some regions, maybe not all of China, everywhere. Mm-hmm. That, I guess I wouldn't know. Is that sort of a pretty major symbol is it maybe an equivalent to lions in the West in a lot of ways, or is it is that maybe a, a misuse of the, the idea here? 
I, I don't think it's a, it's a misuse at all. I think uh, tigers are, in some ways, they're more prevalent. So, for instance, there's like the year of the tiger mm. in the Chinese zodiac. And that's one of the really good years to be born. It's like dragon and then tiger. And then after that, it's like rabbit. Jeez. But lions are more common as symbols in a lot of places. So like the statues outside of buildings, there's no there's no tiger dance festival or anything like that. Okay. It, it is lions. And you're, you're right that you'd think it'd be the other way around. Hmm. But since the lions became associated with royalty, that became the more... Stuck, huh? Yeah, it's stuck. Mm, how about that? That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's very informative. I, I'm curious because certainly George uses both tigers and lions for ET, and I wanted to get a wanted us to all get a sense of where that influence is coming from. That definitely helps. It says the Chinese also probably saw lions while traveling to India because they were found there. Okay, yeah, good point. That makes sense. Yeah, so there would be more opportunity to see them, maybe probably as compared to people in. In England, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> the African Jasiki says, Zoroaster, duality guardian, angel, and halos. Ah, good call, which is a part of the a part of the origin or the influence for Relorism, too. That's a very good catch. And Aria Saxena again says... I knew your listeners would help me out with my... <laughs> they're good. They're good. The point of the value of doing a live stream is they get to, they get to catch our mistakes for us. <laughs> I just had a little thought following what we were talking about. Sure. Horses are incredibly valuable, yeah, but also very prevalent, and we don't see them as a sigil very often, right? It's too common to be noteworthy, so we use something more exotic or fantastic, like sources, yeah, (laughs) like sources. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that you organically brought up the Jade Emperor of China because of, of course, people by now, and you already know that that's also what these gemstone emperors and Yi Ti are called. Let's talk about them. We have these God Emperors. Uh, here's a quick quote. In ancient days, the god emperors of E.T. were as powerful as any ruler on earth, with wealth that exceeded even that of Valeria at its height, and armies of almost unimaginable size. We talked about the unimaginable size of armies before. <laughs> That's just come back again like, yeah, woo. But it says as wealthy and the armies are big, but it doesn't say more powerful because, of course, they didn't, if they, if they had dragons, and it's not nearly a sure thing that they did, certainly not recently, they didn't, that would be the difference for Valyria being more powerful. But uh, Nina says E.T. seems to be associated, maybe even exclusively associated with the trade in saffron, which is considered precious and extremely expensive, quote, more costly than gold, as it's usually referred to. That would be a real world thing, too, in as recently as a few hundred years ago. So we talked about sailing the Jade Sea to make a ton of money. Saffron would be one of the things you do that for in the real world. It would have been similar. Of course, you don't get do you get saffron in China, or is that more of one of the things from some of oh, those we, islands I mean, that Magellan talked about? You can go buy it at the store, but I think that's more of a <laughs> Southeast Asian Indian thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it would have been easier to find, but maybe it's not native there. I'm not sure. So Spice in general, though. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, I wish I knew a little better, but I, I feel like at one point, pepper might have been as valuable as gold. You got to yeah. think how, it's, it's really hard to understand how different the world used to be. Like, we can have, like, Sushi for lunch and spaghetti for dinner nowadays. But, <laughs> yeah. but oregano would have been like relatively rare, and that would have been relatively local to Europe. But you know, to, to all the different flavors and, and spices we have, it's, it's important. We have to eat all the time. Just think how <laughs> we constantly have to eat, and how bored people would get with food. How luxurious it would be to have some exotic flavor. How valuable it would be. Yeah. So people coming over and paying a huge amounts for this, and that's that show is a part of why Yiti gets so rich. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, people 
sailors, tradesmen who would come to China either by land or by sea, they weren't coming for silver or gold or bronze or yeah, they had or, that back home. Yeah, <laughs> they, they were coming to get yummy stuff to put on their food. That's a, for sure. It's amazing. You're like, yeah, we just grow that. They give us tons of money for it. Like, this is great. <laughs> I love it. What a deal. So yeah, their fire and blood calls spices like saffron, cloves, and cinnamon, quote, the rare seasonings from beyond the jade gates, which is most likely Yeeti. Some of them probably come from other spots. There's probably a few. There's it's a wide circle of of sailing there. There's got to be some some obscure spots that only certain places, certain things grow. But most of it sounds like ET. It's fertile, it's big, there's more people growing things. And that money, the, the fact that they're so wealthy is in part because of this trade, which implies a lot of that, a huge percentage of that trade is coming from there. Nina wonders if silk was invented in Yi-T like it was in China. It makes sense. Uh, we don't hear of silk being made anywhere else in, in, in Planetos, so it would certainly fit. Well, the, the thing with silk is that for a period of, of centuries, it was a death penalty level state secret oh. of you better not ever allow that to go past our borders because it is so incredibly valuable. So China would export silk like nothing you could even believe. But the idea of carrying a live silkworm out of China was something that would get your head chopped off. Wow. (laughs) That reminds us of like the pair the analogs to that in, in, Martin's world, I guess, would be like the secret of Valyrian steel that Maester was trying to mm. smuggle out. Or he didn't know all, he, did, he hadn't figured it all out. He was just trying to understand parts of it. But yeah. Or the Murex snails from the, the Carthaginians, the Punic people, the secret of purple. <laughs> secret of making purple. Yeah. Things like that. Secret of purple. Wasn't <laughs> <laughs> that a strange thing? It's like the secret of making purple was worth millions back in the day or billions. It's like, so here's another quote about. The early, earlyishness of things and the scale of history. Whatever the truth, E.T. was beyond question one of the places where men first climbed from the pit of savagery to civilization and literacy. For the wise men of the East have been reading and writing for many thousands of years. Their most ancient records are cherished, almost venerated, but are also jealously guarded by their scholars. Such accounts as we have are pieced together from hearsay, from travelers, and scattered texts that have escaped E.T. to find their way across the seas to the Citadel. So this definitely sounds like China, and Chris, I want to hear your thoughts on this for sure, but this is a really particularly favorite passage of mine, something that I'm really glad George included, because some people will complain and say George is borrowing too much from the real world. I strongly disagree, because look at what we're doing here. We're using this as a springboard to learn about real history, learning about real culture, things like that, while also having fun with our made-up world here. And if it was entirely all made up in the world, that would be fun, too. But we wouldn't get this opportunity to springboard into real-world parallels. And that's one of the things about China that I think is so cool, so fascinating. It does seem to be the most, like, recorded country or culture of all time, even with respect to the fact that China is a a catch-all phrase in this context. It's still just... Especially for how old it is. Yeah, it's super... Like, so many other places Mm -hmm. in the world, like, it was all destroyed. Like, Library of Alexandria, like, a lot of stuff that was there wasn't saved or whatever. So talk to to us about that for a minute, about how this applies to China and and how... Well, in in terms of of records and of destruction, Mm -hmm. there's been... A lot of that okay. in China as well. The the records that we have are pretty sparse and pretty few and far between. And actually, some of the oldest records that we actually know of today were only di- rediscovered 
okay. in the last few few decades because they had just okay. they'd been buried to somebody and every other extant copy had been destroyed a thousand years ago or wow. something in a fire somewhere. So it, it's it really is incredible. Just uh, when we think of almost regardless of what we're talking about the the stuff that we know is so minuscule compared to the stuff we don't know yeah. and probably never will. Yeah. I, I hope more is discovered though. We talked about recently we had cause to briefly bring up the terracotta warriors just as, as, as an idea to in part, just cause it's amazing, but also just to point out how recently they were discovered, like relative history it was like 1975 or something. Well, in the 1970s, <laughs> And that's how Gobekli Tepe was found too, or Tepe was found too. Like these unbelievable, like uh, ultra epic historic finds that were just like, oops. <laughs> When's the next big oops going to come? I hope soon because it's these oopses are awesome. Hey, what's what's that really triangular hill over there? I don't know. It's probably not. Don't worry nothing. about it. <laughs> One day they might just find Genghis Khan's tomb. It seems unlikely, but maybe they will. Maybe they'll find it, or because they did apparently find Phil, Philip of Macedon's tomb and Alexander's tomb is still gone the mongolians really would rather you didn't yeah they don't want <laughs> was it the story that like everyone who they, he was buried and then they killed everyone who buried him and then they killed the people that killed the people who buried him is <laughs> that is definitely the story it's, might be exaggerated um, but whoa <laughs> it might be but i mean you, you you read much about the mongols and you're like maybe not exactly yeah, yeah, you couldn't put it past them uh, which is like chilling <laughs> they might have also killed all their families yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> And, and to this very day, the, there's this region around where it's thought his tomb might be, and it's known as the Great Taboo. And you are just, that's illegal to go there. Whoa. So even now, wow. That's wild. Yeah, they, they take it seriously. <laughs> Jeez. Well, speaking of people who are hallowed in memory and whose effects are still in play long after their death, oh, in this case, death is... Maybe a misnomer. I'm referring to the House of the Undying. So are they dead? Are they not? I don't know. This is probably one of the most quoted passages in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, certainly in A Clash of Kings, which I can only assume is because it's so cool and mysterious and stirring. Shea, take us away. Ghosts lined the hallway, dressed in the faded raiment of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. They had hair of silver and hair of gold and hair of platinum white. And their eyes were opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade. Faster, they cried. Faster, faster. She raced, her feet melting the stone wherever they touched. Faster, the ghosts cried as one. And she screamed and threw herself forward. A great knife of pain ripped down her back. And she felt her skin tear open and smelled the stench of burning blood and saw the shadow of wings. And Daenerys Targaryen flew. Gets me every time. That quote's so good. And those are very specific gemstones. That's not sapphire. It's not ruby. That's not emerald. These aren't like Western gems. These are ones we associate with the East more, more so, especially given that her eyes are amethyst, and that's associated with the Valyrians. But 
Nowhere else do we see opal-eyed folks. Nowhere are there tourmaline-eyed folks. Nowhere else do we see jade-eyed people. Maybe the Lannisters have, but they're more described as emerald. And emerald and jade are distinctly different color shades of green. But these are specific gems, so they correspond to nothing better in that we know of in this world than the gemstone emperors. And there's really no other fit that we know of. So that is the core of why this connection is, exists in, in theory. And conceptually, it's similar to the magic of the Legends of the Age of Heroes. We, a lot of them had children that had some of their magical characteristics that were passed down to their descendants, but would die out over time. Those eye colors seem to persist, though. The genetic marker, like the Danes, the Lannisters, maybe to a lesser extent, the Starks have eye colors. Even the Baratheons have the blue. They just have these eye colors that persist over a long period of time. Think of it like the Dragon Rider bloodlines of Valyria, but without the incest. The Valerians did that with the incest to keep it going, but in this case, these eyes are still persisting without any sort of incest. So a much deeper dive into this is in the Great Empire of the Dawn and Ashai episode, so I recommend checking those out if you haven't already, but or rechecking them out if you check them out long ago. But that's where we're at with this, and it's super neat to, to reflect on in a different context. The weakening of the bloodlines is also reflected in this quote that Sean will read. Yet every reign was shorter and more troubled than the one preceding it. For wild men and baleful beasts pressed at the borders of the great empire, lesser kings grew prideful and rebellious, and the common people gave themselves over to avarice, envy, lust, murder, incest, gluttony, and sloth. So that is the seven deadly sins, but without wrath and incest added in its place. So, Because <laughs> incest makes us mad. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so Nina says, compare the street preacher Tyrion notices in A Clash of Kings taking advantage of the political uncertainty of the times as well as the natural phenomenon of the Red Comet to denounce what he sees as the moral corruption of Westeros. If this was already a time of political instability for Yee as claims became more numerous and challengeable, then it might be easy to conflate that political unrest with the supposed moral decay of the Yeetish. And yes, this is the same preacher, I believe, that calls Tyrion the twisted little monkey demon. So that's another little mini connection here that thickens this whole thing. And I do wonder, what did the current people of Yeet think of the comet? If they're big on signs like the, the Chinese are big on symbols from mandates from heaven and what this says about the current reign. Things in Yeet right now, as we'll say at the end, are not great. There's a lot of strife and chaos, which might be setting up future stories. But the comet may have inflamed matters, pun intended. I'm talking about the fictional place, right? Not not the real place? Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I'd be curious. Yeah, were, were, were comets hold any special relevance for China anymore? I mean, they, always, they do everywhere, but I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, it, exactly as you say. Anytime uh, things move in the heavens that are unexpected that is well it's literally disastrous isn't it <laughs> and the the major symbol probably the most important symbol of a sovereign in terms of having the authority to continue their rule and dynastic power was the ability to correctly interpret the signs of the heavens and to be able to adequately predict when people would be able to farm. And is this court if, astrology? Uh, is this astrology or related uh, to astrology? Yes. Okay. It, 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 you, you definitely call it astrology, but the Chinese would just call it making a calendar. But it's, it's one and the same. Okay. And the idea was, is that as the appointed child of the gods the emperor and only the emperor was allowed to make 
and approve calendars. And one of the surest signs that someone was about to usurp you or rebel against you was they start publishing their own calendar. Mm-hmm. Oh, neat. That's not a thing that we're familiar with in the West so much, your it's, own calendar. It's, you're like, what? It doesn't seem like They're a changing deal, time. Like, this is how time works. We decide. That's a, that's a power move. That's cool. It's, I mean, it is a threat okay. to a power that the established authority has. I mean, like they would burn you with a stake if you printed the Bible. Like recreating oh, yeah. the Bible was uh, for quite a long time. You're right. A threat to the power of the the church. Interesting. Uh, also, I, I want to point out earlier. I mentioned. I'm sure you're better than me, Chris. But that several moments in Chinese history, millions of people died to a flood. Also, several moments in Chinese history, millions of people died to starvation. Like the ability for someone to properly plan the food for the, all those people that's going to make you king or make you not king it's not just a prestige thing yeah a lot of people's lives depend on it yeah exactly when you start reading about it you're like wow that seems really harsh but you're like oh no that's how people lived and died and it it's super important and no wonder they took it really really seriously yeah it's a job you can't we, we mess take up. food we take food for granted now, but it was the efforts of people a hundred-ish years ago figuring out fertilizer and seeds and stuff like that. It, like there literally wouldn't be enough food on Earth for all the people if we hadn't had some certain scientific developments. Clearly, and when you yeah. go farther back in time, it's the calendar was a thing. It was letting people produce enough food to support the population. And the need would be greater, the intensity, right. because of the failure of a system in China would cause more death than a failure in a place with fewer people. Like there's more people die when you run out of food versus a place where it's obviously a tragedy when one person starves, but a thousand people starving is, is less than 10,000 people starving. The total amount of suffering, even relative to population is greater. Definitely. And uh, you could, you can, there's, you can roughly track how okay a dynasty is doing by whether or not they keep their grain silos full for emergency. And when the emperors start getting a bit too lazy and they just start selling all the grain instead of keeping some squirreled away, uh, you're like, okay, the, the downhill slope has arrived and we're, we're about to really start in tough times. Yikes. <laughs> and recall, folks, how this ties very well into a, a major plot in A Clash of Kings, which is right in our vicinity with this monkey demon quote in the comet. The bread riots in King's Landing. They're starving and they turn on the rulers because they're like, we don't have food. Someone else needs to be in charge. Damn it. (laughs) We got to (laughs) eat. It's like, I don't care what else you're doing. You're you're failing in your most basic duty here to not let us starve. And you're not. So get the hell out of here. (laughs) I think there's an old saying that basically goes, even the most polite society is about three missed meals from anarchy. Being hangry is a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think most of us have felt it. I certainly get hangry. (laughs) So imagine your children starving. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that would make me more angry. (laughs) You're much more willing to put it all on the line against the authority when it when you're in that scenario. If the authority is is not doing the basic minimum to ensure that you can do what you must to provide for your family, all bets are off. Yeah, yeah, it's the basic. Agreement, the tacit agreement that's in place. Look, you you can get away with a lot, but not letting us starve. That's, <laughs> that's too far. Hopefully, it doesn't get to that point. But it does. But we can handle it. But no food, <laughs> we can't handle that. So this 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 discussion of gradual moral decay, political instability. We got to figure. There's some famines involved in some of these examples. It would have been or other natural disasters, disease, other things like that. But 
another thing that would happen that would happen in Valyria, we keep comparing things to Valyria, uh, maybe the Targaryens are a good example. Even right away, the Targaryens had stability during Aegon's reign, which was long, but it was the first king. But almost immediately, historically speaking, it, it, there was a civil war. Magor, basically Visenya's branch versus Rhaenys' branch, the two queen, original queens. And then the Dance of the Dragons rolls around, not super long later, 100 years later, roughly. And one of the things is you have this escalation of families that have claims. Over time, more and more families can connect themselves to that original first dynasty or that original whatever claim within your society gives you the right to rule, whether it's connection to Garth Greenhand, connection to the Maiden Maid of Light and the Lion of Night or what have you, Grey King, whoever, that there's more and more people that can claim that the farther in time you go. And that seems to have happened in Yi Ti and it almost certainly happened in China, but it's for maybe for some different reasons, right? This is where we'll need your, you to fill in. What was it generally just people stepping in when there was instability or what were a lot of the political upheavals caused by in terms of the royals starting it in terms of like what Cassus Belli would they were common in China? I guess I'm asking. It looks like Sean has to, wants to interject. First. Yeah, I know Chris is going to be way more expert than me, but a, a vague understanding I have is there was a, I mean, again, China's history is so long. You have a lot of different things that played out, but a, a pattern I detected was that someone would, would unite and they would be have these ambitions, like usually like infrastructure sort of ambitions, but they'd be very draconian in how they went about it. They just basically enslave the population to build these canals or roads or whatever. And people would be like, that's too much. And they would overthrow them. And then some new person would come along. And, and a lot of times those reigns would last like maybe 20 years. But then other times you would get reigns that lasted hundreds of years. Mm. I'm not sure what the ones that lasted hundreds of years were doing differently, though. But I don't want to steal your... Thunder, Chris, but I, is that a good starting point from uh, how to look at it? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of some of the shorter candlelit both ends scenes that occurred. And one of them is the the Sway, which is, as you said, it's about 20 or so years long. I'm a little fuzzy. Maybe it's like 21 or 19 or something. But you basically get three very rapid fire emperors who all decide that the thing to do is, number one, we're going to expand the Grand Canal, this giant man-made river project. We're going to expand it all the way up past Beijing into the very northern regions of China because we, we're we just going to invade Korea now. That's going to be a thing that we do. And they try it three times, and it's just an epic failure every single time. And by the end of this third emperor's reign, everyone is like, okay, that's enough. The taxes are way too high. We are being made to work for free in this awful, deadly work condition. And we can't even, uh, we don't even have enough time to grow our food mm. because the, yeah. the corvy labor is eating up all the harvest time. Oh. Mm. And so we're done with you. <laughs> and one of the, I think the truly interesting things with, with almost all of Chinese history is that there's no... Pol there's there's almost never been a political claim toward divinity, even though the title is oh. the son of heaven and you have this connection to the supernatural. There's no it's not like in Japan where the emperor is supposedly a direct descendant of the goddess of the sun. Instead, oh. it's just always a regular person. With, who comes from regular peasant stock, usually, and 
in a time of of crisis and rebellion gets enough people into his cause and, and is able to overthrow the whole system. Would you and say that? make a good calendar. <laughs> yeah. Would you say then that <laughs> bloodlines matter less for, for those, those kind of examples then? Well, it's... <sighs> or they matter in a different way, maybe. They, they matter in a in a different way. Okay. And, and once you're established as the authority, then your bloodline... Then, yeah, moves. okay. <laughs> maybe it's easier and, to, and, to catapult your bloodline into greater heights than in the first place. Maybe that would be a... For as authoritarian and top-down of a system as it's largely been, there's there's a lot of people who started from the bottom and really worked their way up and just sort of interesting. an interesting, living in interesting times, as the saying goes. And, and it comes back to, again, political legitimacy derives from the idea of you're doing the bare minimum, at least, to provide for these millions of people who otherwise have pitchforks. <laughs> That's really cool. So that's really well explained. That was very informative. Now, coming a little bit back to the topic of dragons, since we were talking about early expansion, we've danced around, danced around the dragon topic quite a bit. It's come in and out. Now, one of the pieces of evidence I think is particularly strong for dragons being in Yi-T is that to the west of Yi-T is Valyria, where they had dragons. To the east of, of Yi-T is Ashai, where they had dragons. Are we supposed to believe they didn't exist between? <laughs> that seems unlikely, doesn't it? Just as a general range of animals. I mean, we can say, well, they don't like the climate in Yi-T. It's like, ah, I don't know, it's pretty hot there. That tends to be what they like. I mean, maybe there aren't as many mountains, but still, it seems like it's, the climate's fine for them. It's a huge la- land that would have a range of climates, too. True, so. yeah, yeah, that's very true. But there are more, and they're, but they're on the same, like, Meridian as Valyria and a little bit then north of Ashai. They're basically like parallel east-west there. Maybe the Valyria's a little more equi- equatorial, I think, but still. You would definitely expect there to be uh, dragons there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems to, it stands to reason just on basic migration and animal ranging and things like that. Nina says, I definitely think the Yeechish slash the pre-Yeechish inhabitants of the great empire the Dawn had dragons prior to the Long Night. Also, piece of evidence she gives here is the similarity of construction between Valyrian architecture and the five forts. Valyria could not have built the five forts to get the fused stone, but the same technology used via the intense heat that dragons can generate, which is greater than any other known heat other than the fires of the earth, as we're told. I doubt they were harnessing that. So dragons would make more sense. So that would that could explain why it looks like one big fused stone because there's some sort of dragon. And, and there's also sorcery, like... There's lots of mentions of Yeechish people using sorcery, but it's never given any concrete like description, whether it's elemental or any other type of magic. We don't know. It's just there's sorcerers. Like some of the emperors have been sorcerers, some of the people have been sorcerers, but it's that's as far as it goes, sorcery. <laughs> and whenever you don't understand something, it's definitely sorcery. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and some of them might pump themselves up that way. Like, oh, the emperor is a sorcerer because that makes people think he's more powerful. Maybe he doesn't, he just knows a few sleight of hand tricks <laughs> just to make it look real. I was like, whoa, that flower came from nowhere. He pulled a quarter from my ear. Whoa, he's a sorcerer. <laughs> yeah, that's some emperor. Where did the pencil go? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I feel pretty strongly about that. It seems pretty likely activity. So what about dragons in Chinese mythology? They're a big deal in Chinese mythology. It's another reason why if George is comparing E.T. to China, there's even more connections in the real world influence. It's, I think it's, that's a significant oversight on on george's part of it's like why 
why do there appear to be no direct references to dragons? Because um, dragons, and uh, as you say, they, they are a tremendous part of East Asian mythology in general. A lot of that stems out of China, but they uh, they occupy a different sort of mythological space than they do in in Europe or, or Western Asia, or as we conceive of them, where dragons are largely considered, if not necessarily evil entities, although that's how they were initially portrayed in sword and sorcery stories, then at least engines of destruction. D- Danny's dragons are <laughs> marvelous creatures, but they're really good at burning. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I read... One time, I wish I knew who to give this credit to. I don't remember where I read it. But it was, now this was a little more Eurocentric, I guess. But the dragons often were symbolic of in, internal demons. Like something that the individual person needed to conquer was represented by the dragon. So like to win the princess, if you will, you had to kill the dragon. But really that meant you had to like get over your narcissism or your father's expectations or whatever else Make it was. Yourself, it was yeah. some... Yeah, some of us are still working on that last part. (laughs) (laughs) We've all got some big dragons. Yeah, yeah, no, beasts are largely symbolic of of metaphorical internal conflict. Yeah, absolutely. In much of East Asian mythology, though, dragons again they they occupy this different role, whereas their aspects of fire Hmm. in a lot of European mythology the the element of dragons in in east asia is water they most live under the sea they don't have that winged manticore structure instead they are very serpentine and almost eel like and instead of being engines of destruction like basically living b-52 bombers uh, instead they are life givers and sort of boons and you'd be really really lucky to see one or that's very different it's almost opposite they they, they get a lot into this in the series um the book uh the priory of the orange tree um which deals a lot with asian dragons disease and i both read it and i highly recommend it to any fan of song of ice and fire but it gave me a lot of vibes like that but with this asian water dragon counterpart to it for sure was, was well represented in that in fact, Can it you has say the, the name of Asian that again? The Priory of, of the Orange Tree. Yeah. It has like the called. Eastern Dragons and the Western Dragons. Yeah, it has basically. both represented. It has it has like a European culture, but it also has an Asian culture that yeah. they like that they interact. They, they it was really well done. Merge quite a lot. Yeah, it's a pretty solid story. Yeah. yeah. So so maybe maybe the dragons in ET, maybe we don't hear about them so much because they're more secretive. They keep to maybe themselves. They're sea dragons. They don't. Oh, maybe they're sea dragons. Uh, as well. Yeah. Like you know, they, they could actually also be physically different beyond being like different, like what you're saying, which is they might they might have different behavior, but they might also be physically different to to fire dragons. Yeah, the, 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 you know, East Asian dragons, they don't have wings. They mm-hmm. they have these little weird, like tiny T-Rex arms. <laughs> Checks and... out, honestly, within in the novels, the, the concept that dragons were created from wyverns and were mm-hmm. were created. So the idea that perhaps dra- the Valyrian dragons were created from the Yeetish or the Great Empire of the Dawn wyvern dragons. The wyvern are the source you know. of the wings on the yeah. Isn't it, isn't it that wyverns are like almost identical to dragons, except what is it? They don't breathe fire? They don't is breathe fire right? and they're smaller. 
they're considerably smaller. And a lot of times they, and their behavior is a little different. Like a lot of, some of them pa- hunt in packs, which we don't see with dragons. Um, but that's just like, they're like velociraptor, like flying velociraptors. It's like, yikes. But there's a, there's a theory that they were engineered, that, not, that the wyverns weren't engineered, that dragons were engineered and wyverns and, and fireworms were spliced to create dragons. That's one, one deep cut theory because those, those are both things. And if you combine their characteristics, you would have a dragon. It does fit. So yeah. Uh, so that's really cool. That's really, that's really informative about Chinese dragons. I, I, th- I honestly thought when you were going to say that, I almost thought you were going to say air when you said, when you were going to say which element. I, th- I thought that's where it was going. But water, that, that does really fit. It's really cool to think about too. Yeah, because they would be perceived differently. I mean, George is given ice dragons, which is, I mean, that's frozen water. So there is sort of an analog. <laughs> okay, so moving on a little bit, we have the dragons have returned, obviously, because of Danny and other factors. And like many great epic events from A Song of Ice and Fire, history repeats itself. George sets up a lot of the history in, entirely for that purpose, in addition to expand the story. So I shouldn't say entirely, but largely to set up the main story. Likewise, we expect a second long night, which brings us to another important connection. You've all heard of the Bloodstone Emperor. Let's restate a little bit about him and apply it to this discussion. He practiced dark arts, torture, and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. This was called the blood betrayal. He overthrew the Amethyst Empress, and this is given Daenerys is such a great analog for the Amethyst Empress. This bloodstone emperor is an, am- is an analog for Euron. Dark arts, check. Torture, check. Necromancy, maybe. <laughs> we'll see, especially if he's connected to the others or helps free them or anything like that. Enslaved his people, pretty much. Took a tiger woman for his bride. Okay, that one's a little curious. Let's, let's come back to that. Feasted on human flesh. Maybe not directly, but he's made other people feast on human flesh, some of his own prisoners. Cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. Cast down the true gods. Absolutely, Euron's all over that. He's casting down all the gods. That's that's all. He's all about that. The black stone that fallen from the sky, that part's a little... He'd call them the untrue gods. Yeah, the untrue gods. So... It's, it's said that the Bloodstone Emperor is the founder of the Church of Starry Wisdom, which is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft, but it sounds like astrology. <laughs> the Starry Wisdom, right? That sounds like it's a very close reference there, I think. There's a couple of, yeah. there's a couple of other real-world analogs. Let me get out this real quick, and then I'll turn it over to Chris for some comparisons. Elagabulus, who was born Antoninus, was possibly the worst emperor of Rome ever. There's a lot of historians who say that, and that's really saying something, considering like Caligula and Nero, these guys. He renamed himself Elagabulus after being called Antoninus. He, there was a, a peculiar Eastern god, Syrian god called Elagabal, and he put Elagabal on a altar, on a chariot, and drove it around, and it was represented by a black meteorite. So he really did make all Romans worship a black stone that fell from the sky. And you can pretty, you can see what, you know, when you make everyone worship a weird religion and he's also like dressing up as a prostitute and doing all sorts of insane things. He put Elagabal above Jupiter. That's like some new president, like we don't worship God anymore. Now we worship something he made up. It's not even like an existing, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, no, now we're all Muslim. No, it would be like, no, now we all worship that spaghetti monster Saturn. Yeah, the spaghetti monster. Like something completely made up that no one had ever heard of before. Maybe a few people had, because apparently this cult did exist, but it was really obscure. He named himself high priest of this cult, too. So there you go, high priest of starry wisdom. He was killed by his own grandmother and the Praetorian Guard. Like, they did the killing, but it was her idea. So that when your own grandmother has you killed, you've you messed up. <laughs> but you can see why. That's so 
so trying to change the whole world, trying to change everyone's religion and making them worship this other thing. What's funny is some of it actually stuck. As bad as it was, he also wanted people to worship the sun. And that actually stuck. Some of that stuck. Like, despite how crazy he was, the Roman legions continued to do a little bit of sun worship. Which brings us to a second anecdote to set up what I hope we have some familiar anecdotes from China. Nina points out Akhenaten, the Egyptian pharaoh who was King Tut's dad, he tried to get everyone to stop worshiping the Egyptian pantheon to only worship the sun. Aten. <laughs> Tutankhamun. Shut up about the sun. 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 <laughs> so... He was also made really popular. After his death, they just like smashed all his statues and tried to like erase his name. So like, yeah, so that's really bad. He was, they didn't call him by his name anymore. They just called him the criminal or the enemy. That was his name, which it's like the usurper or something. (laughs) So there's got to be some similar stories in all of Chinese history. What do you suppose are like the top two or three or just one, if there's one that really stands out, like bizarre, crazy Uh, Chinese emperors. The one I thought of was the Mercury Rivers guy. (laughs) Mercury Rivers guy. Yeah. <laughs> Talk, tell us about that one and then maybe give us yours, unless that happens to be the guy you would pick. But, uh, I, okay, I, I've got two then. So the first emperor, Tin So Huang, or as his mom called him, Ying Zheng, and he managed to unite the, the warring states, which no prizes for why they were called that, <laughs> um, of them, which had been basically at odds with each other for a good four centuries or so. And they were nominally ruled by the king of Zhou, but he had absolutely no power at all. (laughs) And so out in the hinterlands of the far west of what was China at the time, this family comes to power in this state called Qin, and it is just the most yokel, backwards, farmer, peasant people imaginable, but they managed to transform it through these series of completely insanely draconian laws into being this phenomenal military powerhouse that just completely crushes everybody else at once in a single battle. And so then then Ying Zheng comes to the throne. He says, no, I'm not the king. I'm, in fact, something much beyond that. You can call me the divine sovereign, which is where we get the Chinese term for emperor, oh. uh, Huang Ti. I'm going to take these two old terms that we used to apply to demigods, and now they're mine. And, and, and so he is one of the reasons why China is called China, the Qin dynasty. He unifies the written language. He largely unifies the spoken language. He unifies the system of weights and measures and the width of roads and stuff like that. And then he decides that he wants to live forever. So he sends uh, 10,000 people on ships over to what he thinks is the island of the immortal sages, which turns out to probably have been Japan. And they never come back because they're like, it's cooler Let's here. not go back. Um, him. He's... <laughs> That's a good reason. Too. It doesn't work out. And then he, his, his alchemists say, my Lord, we have this amazing substance that is silver, but you can drink it. And it will definitely make you live forever because of course, silver and precious metals are eternal elements. And so if you make them a part of your body, you will become an eternal element too. And it turns out you actually just go insane and die. Hmm. See, I thought he was going to be right when you set that up with the silver thing. I was like, oh, that's a good theory. (laughs) 
Well, you should have known because he's not still alive. Ah, allegedly. Was this this know. was like right around the same time as Jesus? This was about two hundred and twenty or so years before. Uh, Jesus. So it was uh, a couple centuries before that whole situation, and that debacle. That whole thing. There were there were critics and there were proponents, but <laughs> there's been lasting lasting ramifications. Hey, Jesus tried to sure. change the religion, and and he practiced necromancy of a sort. He came back from the dead. That's <laughs> necromancy. <laughs> like, hey, Jesus was. Right, a- yeah. No. It's, so. But that's where, like, the Terracotta Warriors come from. He had thousands of his officials built into these life-sized statues so that they could just be on his team forever. (laughs) An individual. That's something that blows my mind. They're all individuals. Like, all those statues, everyone is unique. It's insane. Yeah, and that's that's, really mind-blowing. And I, I read about it of it was just this really sober analysis of like well they're all individuals because they were made by hundreds of people over a period of like 15 years so of course they don't look the same like different artists uh, yeah, or different <laughs> sculptors yeah wow different wear and tear yeah the, the clay changed over time and yeah but the other guy speaking of jesus <laughs> jesus's little brother who was a wannabe scholar in the mid the late uh, Qing dynasty, which was the last imperial dynasty before the Republican Revolution and and the 20th century. And this fellow really wanted to be a part of the imperial court. And to be a part of the imperial court, you had to take the civil service examination, which is like the SAT and the ACT and the AP test all put together. Hmm. But it only happens once every about three years or so back in the day. And he was not good at that. And he failed it about three times. And then he started having fever dreams that God was talking to him and that he was actually the the younger brother of Jesus. And really, <laughs> Confucius was a lying bastard and he must be totally overthrown. How dare he? And so he, he goes and declares himself the king of heavenly peace or Taiping Guowang. And he takes over the large majority of Southeast China for a period of about 12 years. And about 30 million people get killed as a result. Oh, my God. 30 million. How did he did he take over militarily or was it like a cult? Uh, both yes and okay uh, it was a military cult <laughs> and um <laughs> or nice i mean scary. not nice but yeah i meant nice like answer sean not nice <laughs> that you did that. <laughs> so it's going on at literally the same time as both the opium war and the american civil war whoa and it's just this thing that's just happening for the entire ni- 1860s jeez <laughs> wow that was that's a bad decade around the world huh <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And eventually they defeat him. But for a while, he's in control of this humongous piece of southern China, almost right up to the city limits of Shanghai, but never quite actually takes Shanghai. And it's just this it's so weird because people are just going around cutting each other's heads off and putting them on sticks because they believe in the wrong version of who the king is supposed to be. Wow. Jeez, that's something else. Wow. 
I knew there'd be good stories. We weren't disappointed. I wasn't disappointed. That's awesome. <laughs> Glad to put that question in. Yeah. Circling it back a little bit to A Song of Ice and Fire, the fate of the Bloodstone Emperor and his tiger bride is left unknown, which is also fitting for a parallel to Euron, giving his story is yet to play out. And that's also why I tried to make the tiger-lion comparison earlier, because I wonder if this is a parallel if we have, if the Bloodstone Emperor has a lion bride, well, that would fit with what we saw on TV with Euron and Cersei. The way that story played out doesn't seem likely to to have a lot of relevance to the books, but the general idea that possibility is, well, the possibility exists. Let's put it that way. It may not be a strong possibility. I think it's a decent possibility, but it's an idea, and it could play out some other way. Some other like we may realize later, like, oh, that's what the Tiger Bride meant or was suggesting and we just haven't figured it out yet or maybe not all the clues have been delivered to us but something to keep an eye on for sure it's a compelling idea after the long night let's talk about what happens after the long night for sure because of course the blood betrayal the bloodstone emperor kicked off the long night supposedly but after that as we've said yt or the region that is now yt managed to stay somewhat cohesive as compared to other regions and here's a quote that describes that ensuing period. Sean. Since the further east emerged from the long night and the centuries of chaos that followed, 11 dynasties have held sway over the lands we now call Yiti. Some lasted no more than a half century, the longest endured for 700 years. Some dynasties gave way to others peacefully, others with blood and steel. On four occasions, the end of a dynasty was followed by a period of anarchy and lawlessness when the warlords and petty kings warred with one, warred with one another for supremacy. The longest of these interregnums lasted more than a century. So 11 dynasties, that's a lot. 700 years, that means there's been several dynasties that lasted longer than King's Landing is old. King's Landing is only 300 years old. It's like they had their own century of blood there, isn't it? Right? <laughs> like this uh, interregnum of, of a century or more than something. But that, it's longer than a century. So, of course, it's bigger. Yeah, they got to stay consistent with it. Everything's bigger. But this just goes to show, I mean, the scale of this place in terms of how long it's existed compared to Westeros and King's Landing in this current scenario that exists in Westeros, that's what makes it a really interesting setting for future story development in this world because it's such a different dynamic, such a different culture, such an older place. It would really be very distinct from Westeros in so many ways. Even though we're able to make some pretty strong comparisons, there'd be so much that is just ripe and different that would make it fun, especially if there were some connections to make the, dy- uh, the dynamic elements stand out even more and, and to highlight those differences. And I don't have a whole lot to say about that other than that, just like thinking ahead and, and imagining and just expecting coolness down the line. <laughs> now, as... There's yeah, to draw from. And What's that? You can really just... What I'm saying is there's, there's so much to draw from. There's so many possibilities, yeah. and it's it's really fun to think about. Absolutely. Next quote we have is going to refer to a couple other elements that we've briefly discussed. We'll get a little deeper into the moving around of the capitals and a couple other enemies of the empire. Over the centuries, the capital of the Golden Empire has moved here and there and back again a score of times as rival warlords contended and dynasties rose and fell. The Grey Emperors, Indigo Emperors, and Pearl White Emperors ruled from Yin on the shores of the Jade Sea, first and most glorious of the Yeetish cities. But the Scarlet Emperors raised up a new city in the heart of the jungle and named it Siko the Glorious. Long fallen and overgrown, its glory lives now only in legend, whilst the Purple Emperors preferred Tiki, the many-towered city in the western hills, and the Maroon Emperors kept their martial court in Jinki, 
the better to guard the frontiers of the Empire against Reavers from the Shadowlands. Reavers from the Shadowlands? Talk about another cool idea from for story purposes or set up for world building for other things. I, I mean, I that, should, I that I was... Go, jinkies. Yeah, jinkies, yes. <laughs> that was a little Scooby-Doo reference there. <laughs> that was two sentences that Ashea just read. That whole thing was two sentences. And talk about... We've, sometimes people talk, joke about a two-sentence story. Or this is two-sentence world-building. And that is a ton of world-building in two sentences. <laughs> I mean, sentences. Well, one of them is short. The other is really, it's really <laughs> one short sentence and one massive sentence. <laughs> but I would love to see that. Just Reavers from the Shadowlands fighting. That, that just sounds really cool. I don't know. Maybe I'm just easy to please, but that sounds awesome. Yin is the greatest city of the Yichu cities that we're, we're told. It's, it's the one that it says the capital has moved here and there and back again a score of times. This sounds vaguely like The Hobbit. But there's Yin has apparently been the capital most often of those places. It's a wealthy port city. Different dynasties have ruled in different places, but... It's always Yinning. It's all- Right. <laughs> so yes, that's a good one. <laughs> so so <laughs> we don't have that in Westeros. King's Landing is the first time there's been a capital of Westeros, and that was 300 years ago. So we don't have this shifting of capitals thing. We don't have the scale of time for that to even happen. It may happen by the end of this story. We may see that King's Landing is gone or a new division has created political divisions within Westeros. Who knows? But Yee-T is like a model for what could happen in Westeros, which is where we're going. So I like that. I like that idea. But even that, even with that said, King's Landing has been discussed as a thing that could be moved by people like Cersei and Ares, for example. They've talked about moving it. Cersei talked about moving it like all the way to to the west and maybe some other ideas. Ares talked about just moving it to the other side of the Blackwater because he didn't like how it smelled. So <laughs> his logic was a little <laughs> thinner, I guess you could say. But it's another one of those parallels between those two characters. And of course, maybe uh, Heron the Black was thinking of making Heron Hall the capital of Westeros at some point. That may have been the intent, although he didn't get to that point. And the U.S. isn't really old enough for multiple capitals. There was an attempt to move, to start a new country in, in Texas or whatever, uh, but that didn't that didn't work. But it is an example. It, the capital didn't start off in Washington D.C. It's, yeah, we have right. had multiple capitals. That's a good point. You know, I forgot about that. That's true. I guess it, Philadelphia. It's been pretty stable, but you're right. It didn't actually start there. Good point. I forgot. D.C. was the political compromise to to get the U.S. bank started. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had to make the Virginians happy. So. Right there on the right there on the Potomac. Yeah. Little little bit of the Hamilton music was the. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Burr not being in the room where it happened between Hamilton and Jefferson to make uh-huh. that deal. Yeah, Nina points out that there have been eight cities prior to Washington that were national capitals or seats wow, of our national government. That's more than That's I thought. A, you know, okay. a lot, yeah. But it stated well. Come on, Mary, <laughs> <pick> up your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so the comparatively thinking of like the borders and who some of these other enemies are. We just mentioned the Reavers from the Shadowlands. The Jogos Nye are the, the real enemy of the time that isn't supernatural. Of course, leaving out the Lion of Night or you know, non-human elements. The, there's lots of raids from there. That's why it, it's a good parallel to Mongolia and China. Compare with the yeah. Sarnori who came into conflict with the Dizraki. The Dizraki destroyed the Sarnari, the Sarnori, but the the Golden Empire is a little tougher, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting, the good comparison that Martin draws between the, the Dothraki and the Jogos Nahai. They have such cultural similarities and overlaps, and you can really see how it's comparing the, the Mongols or the pre-Mongol people in the eastern 
part of Asia and, and Siberia to the, the Huns of Attila. Mm. And how they, they're a little bit more comprehensible. They have habits which we can at least sort of put our own understanding touchstones on. Whereas these, these other guys are just totally out there and completely wild. <laughs> and they drink blood out of cups and stuff like <laughs> that. Calls, yeah. <laughs> Even Genghis Khan is much land and as many peoples as he conquered. He didn't get all of China. Like you got a hunk of it, but. That, yeah, that, that took him to, uh, to grandson. Grandson Kublai. Mm. He's, he's That's still pretty fast. That's true. <laughs> it's impressive. It's awful, but impressive. So a couple of examples of, of different emperors who ruled in Yi-T, and we'll, we'll try to do a quick comparison with a few of these and, and do real-world real touchdowns here. So a series of short, shortest quotes that will springboard for brief reference, starting with this business of the eunuch emperors, which is a pretty compelling and interesting little bit. The nine eunuchs, the pearl white emperors who gave E.T. 130 years of peace and prosperity. As young men and princes, they lived as other men, taking wives and concubines and siring heirs. But upon their ascent, each surrendered his manhood, root and stem, so that he might devote himself entirely to the empire. Whoa. Okay, so we know eunuch, powerful eunuchs were a thing in like ancient Persia, Achaemenid Persia and maybe other eras. And I know there are some eunuchs in Imperial China. Isn't that a thing? Or, but not like ruler, like outright rulers, right? Or what? Well, just, just uh, tell, talk to us about eunuchs in China. So they, they were definitely a thing, a, a big part of the, the culture and of the ruling class. They were rarely, almost never actually rulers, but oftentimes they could be the the power behind the throne that is really controlling because the emperor is about 12. Vari's situation, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and where they tended to come from was early on, they would be cr- criminals and the punishment would be getting chopped. And then they would be sort of enslaved into service into the court and for some reason they were like oh that will make them super trustworthy we should totally <laughs> trust <laughs> we cut um, your parts off and and then hire you to in a trusted position logic is lacking a little curious and then later on they they were sometimes captives that were taken from south china and southeast asia but oftentimes much as a lot of the castrati were in medieval europe a lot of times this would be a, a voluntary process because it would afford that person and their family a very high and powerful and and provided for position in life and even though they had to lose a part of themselves in the process. They could still uh, marry. They could still have families. They, they would often adopt uh, sons to carry on their, their family lines in, in that method. What about this whole having and, kids first thing? Is that, was that, and then having, uh, was that a thing? Okay. So yeah, that, this, this is where it, it goes, it gets off it's of its own thing here. What we, okay. what we know is that there, there was never a line of emperors in China who became eunuchs because they thought that was a thing to yeah, do. Yeah, that sounded made up, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know for sure. <laughs> so yeah, there might have been one or two that kind of briefly ruled in their own name, but usually that was 
just not acceptable because the whole idea of of being the ruler is that you're able to carry on that family line via uh, blood descendancy. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting point here is because that's why I brought up whether it happened as a thing where they'd have kids first and then do that, because that's what the example gives us. And it, it, you can see that being a, a neat idea, but uh, apparently at least not in China, there's no analog there. Maybe there is somewhere else in the world. I've never mostly, heard of such a thing, but also when they became emperors, they didn't get more moral yeah, or more. Usually how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then apparently this was a relatively short time it was 130 years. It's a very specific number. But yeah, given the thousands and thousands of years of ET, this isn't—it's a kind of a blip, historically speaking, an I important blip. I'm but. shocked that it lasts that long because, I mean, honestly, it's a one-and-done situation. Yeah, in yeah. Most respects. Yeah. So yeah, I wonder about that. And now, on the opposite end of self-sacrifice to rule, we have this guy. Quote: Lo Tho, called Lo Longspoon and Lo the Terrible, the twenty-second Scarlet Emperor, a reputed sorcerer and cannibal who is said to have supped upon the living brains of his enemies with a long, pearl-handled spoon after the tops of their skulls had been removed. Well, that just makes sense. Yeah, I mean... You have to remove the top of their skulls before you sup on the living brains of your enemies. And you would, of course, use a spoon, a long spoon for that. What other implement would you use? What other handle would you get but pearl? Yeah, are you going to reach in there with your hands? That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's not really cool. that, that makes no sense it's yeah. just it'd fall apart yeah. it just it's, just come on come on yeah <laughs> there's a bit more cannibalism for you and another mention of very vague mention of sorcery maybe he just like pops the top off with his sorcery he's got some sort of head removing trick yeah so it's it's like i said george never gets specific he he leaves it open like a skull with the top of the head removed. yeah it's perfect it's the perfect animal <laughs> but like with this character perhaps there's maybe no better time to bring up an awful person. Is there, what's the deal with slavery in China? Maybe it's a broad question. Maybe it exists in some areas and not others, but just maybe give it us an overview. We talked about it with Sarnor in Persia recently. So I'd be curious what it looks like here. It's not explicitly mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire, whether it exists in Yi but I imagine it's probably similar to China. Maybe not. But what, what do you think? What is the deal with involuntary services? <laughs> yeah, so Seinfeld is weighing in on the question. Slavery is an interesting question in China because it like legally was formally abolished pretty early on. And yet you're you're not a slave technically, but you still have to do what I say for free. And that, that existed right through the, the very end. We were just talking about oh, the unit okay. the cast, even though that would in some cases be a a voluntary process that people would choose to have their children undergo. In other cases, those are war captives Mm. who had no say in the matter at all. And usually they were were taken as pre-adolescent children and subjected to the surgery without any say so at all. And then Hmm. you are servants of the court for the rest of your life. How do you think they raised such big armies? Like even in modern United States, the the slavery is illegal. But what do you think the draft is like? How is you're that? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it gets to that whole semantic conversation we've had a few different times in the show about what really counts as slavery and how there's many regimes that just don't call it slavery. But like you said, Chris, like you, you have to do what I say for free. Isn't that kind of pretty <laughs> much slavery? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much, yeah. And uh, with 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 China, one of the things that was uh, a very popular process in terms of armies is, as you just asked is well make the make the foreigners do it 
make the border people do it. Uh, yeah. Rome did that a lot. We too. Are, <laughs> he in in the internal part of the empire, we are scholar officials and poets and artists. And why would we waste our masculine efforts on something so crass as warfare? Wow. No, <laughs> make the foreigners do it. <laughs> <laughs> Figures. That sounds about right. Yeah, it does sound about right. Now, here's we've had an example of a cannibal sorcerer. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about self-sacrifice to rule the empire. Here's something in between, something that doesn't really talk about how well good of a ruler they were, but it talks about the extreme opulence of this land. Mingo Kun, the glittering god, third of the jade green emperors, who ruled from a palace where the floors and walls and columns were covered in gold leaf and all the furnishings were made of gold, even the chamber pots. The gold toilet, that ancient symbol of true wealth. <laughs> when you can have gold toilets, George was clear to throw that one in there. <laughs> so he's a golden god. <laughs> one of the best examples we have to describe just how wealthy this country is. I mean, this guy is like, what? <laughs> and this is another one you're like, maybe this is exaggerated, but I could believe it. It's not one you can just dismiss entirely. All that concentration of wealth in one place, it again, sounds a bit like Valyria with their endless quest for precious metals. Also sounds a little bit like the Sarnori Palace of a Thousand Rooms. And Nina mentions as well, the rumors of the Lannisters from the perspective of Ashai, which is that they say the Lion Lord lives in a palace of solid gold and that the crofters collected a wealth of gold simply by plowing their fields. So if you reverse that, you're like, well, if they believe that about the Lannisters, which is not true, then this is probably also exaggerated. But... Frankly, there may have been a chamber pot yeah, made of gold. One gold you know? toilet, yeah. <laughs> the rest are just gold colored. It's just gold paint, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, plowing gold coming out of the fields, the farmers are even getting gold. That sounds more, even more crazy than, or unlikely than just a fancy palace. Similar type. A lot of the farmers are like, well, what am I going to do with this? Hey, this and, we just, <laughs> and we just discussed how a farmer found the, the terracotta warriors and the... <laughs> <laughs> and go Bleckley Tepes. So maybe yeah, sometimes they do find pretty amazing things. <laughs> let's not, those farmers doing important things, not just uh, feeding us, but they're archaeologists on their spare time <laughs> without even meaning to be. <laughs> Big enough all That's right. <laughs> what would we do without them? All right. Our last section is, is connections to the West and current affairs in YT. So let's do that real quick and uh, we'll begin to wrap up. So it's mentioned as a trade partner for Lee, Smear, and Tyrosh, surely other name, unnamed places as well. I mean, if you're going to go to Lee, Smear, and Tyrosh, you may as well go to King's Landing or Pentos, maybe. Because as we said, it takes like two years to go from Pentos to the Jade Sea and back. So you're going to probably hit all the major spots if you're going to travel that far. And of course, is maybe it wouldn't take you so long if you didn't stop everywhere on the way. Yeah, good point. Good point. Dawdling. <laughs> and as usual, but then you wouldn't see the sources. <laughs> <laughs> Many people have tried to bring sources back, but they always end up sinking the ship with their jerkiness. <laughs> it's always important to keep perspective in mind. I love that about a song of ice and fire that really drives that point home. It, it has a real world effect on all of us when we think about it. The Dothraki Sea is west of Yi-T, even though it, to the perspective of pretty much everything in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's the extreme east because it's on the other side of the Bone Mountains. So bringing back the Dothraki is, is one of the places we started this episode with, with Daenerys uh, going there with Khal Drogo. Here is a related quote, Ashea. Khal Drogo finally called a halt near the eastern market where the caravans from Yi-T and Ashai and the Shadowlands came to trade. 
with the Mother of Mountains looming overhead. Danny smiled as she recalled Magister Illyrio's slave girl and her talk of a palace with 200 rooms and doors of solid silver. Really similar energy from this palace of solid silver doors. Maybe not quite as fancy as the gold toilet place, but really similar. And it's like make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver, (laughs) the other gold. (laughs) The silver place would be more clean because that's that natural disinfectant. That's that's the healthy, (laughs) that's the hospital palace. Yeah, that's a good point. So another little weird trade quirk is the Yitish people travel to the markets of the Dothraki to buy stuff. Now, of course, everything for sale just about in the Dothraki market is stolen. But the Bone Mountains protect the Yitish from the Dothraki stealing from them. So they're just like, this is a great black market, good spot for them. That It's a one-way street. (laughs) So Because the calls are all about for the most part, giving these caravans safe passage because to them, it's like an exception. It's like, no, don't mess with that. It's like the same reason they don't raid the slave cities because they got to have someone to sell stuff to. And apparently a big market for all their stolen goods is ET, which makes sense. It's a huge place. Lots of cities, big cities, lots of people. There you go. Big markets. And they don't care where it's coming from. You keep all these goods stolen, we call them at a great price, discounted. Yeah. It's... <laughs> no one's going to know. I mean, people are buying them in ET. It's not like they know where it, it was stolen by the Dithraki. They're just like, hey, I it's want a that. It's problem <laughs> if you don't know the victim. <laughs> yeah. It's Santa Claus. Santa Call. Yeah. The Santa Call brought <laughs> it. Yes. Hmm. Nina says, Yandel mentions that the Dithraki have an ancient cultural memory of crossing the mountains and speculates that they might have been fleeing from some savage foe. If the Dithraki's ancestors came out over the des- out of desperation or fear, then maybe they would be afraid of going back across from an, like an ancestral memory thing, which kind of helps protect the E.T., what would that be? We could speculate maybe on what scared them. Maybe they it was a split between them and the Jogos Nye. Maybe Yi-T was too powerful. Maybe it was the Lion of Night, these ancient demon, demonic forces that chased them away. I don't know. Any? Uh, maybe it was dragons. Oh, you never know. Hey, that's true. Oh. That's a good call. Well, there was, gosh, it was the, what the, the, the giant, massive campaign that the one Edish emperor did. And eventually they, all of the, Jogos Nahai had to band together with this uh, woman leader who finally divided up the uh, the armies and sort of picked them off one by one. And uh, but the the idea of a, a large scale migration out of the far east and westward. I mean, you're talking about the Xiongnu, you're talking about the Huns, you're talking about the a lot of movement in pre modern Central Asia which is gave Rome so much of a headache in the the third century and and thereafter. Right. Yeah. Like a domino effect. Like one culture pushes, tries to moves in a direction and takes territory from some other culture. And they, that culture by in in turn moves somewhere else and displaces someone else. And yeah, that's where for a lot of those so-called barbarian invasions of Rome happened by these things. Some of them were a little more just straight aggression, like, like the Huns, but Others were just like, ah, we're we're fleeing someone even more nasty, and <laughs> we're coming into, or we need to take your territory because no, <laughs> well, we're coming. <laughs> <laughs> so here's our last section: the current state of affairs. Sean, tell us what's happening in Yi-T. Uh, according to the Maesters, this is the current situation in Yi-T. Today, Yin is once more the capital of Yi-T. There, the 17th Azure Emperor, Bugai, sits in splendor in a palace larger than all King's Landing. What? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yet far to the east, well beyond the borders of the Golden Empire proper, past the legendary mountains of Morn in the city of Carcosa on the Hidden Sea, dwells in exile a sorcerer lord who claims to be the 69th nice yellow emperor <laughs> from a dynasty fallen for a thousand years. And more recently, a general named Pol Ko, Hammer of Jogos Nai, has given himself imperial honors, naming himself the first of the Orange Emperors, with the rude, sprawling garrison city called Traitor Town as his capital. Which of these three emperors will prevail is a question best left for the historians of years to come. This vaguely sounds like the situation in the North we described in the Barrow Town episode or Barrow Kings episode where you had a situation where there's a bunch of regional powers that aren't strong enough to overcome each other. So they exist in the state where they're just like, we're, we're strong enough to defend our land, but not strong enough to take t- uh, territory from their enemies. They're all weakened by infighting and perhaps other things. Nina points out that there's a report during Ariane's chapters that so she hears there's a slave, revolt in, a slave revolt in Astapor, which isn't relevant, dragons in Karth, which refers to Danny, and Grey Plague in Yi-Ti, which that's a big problem, right? Maybe even if it's only confined to a city or two, that's one of the nastiest diseases we know of in, in the world. So that would be a big problem. And it could be a reason why none of these powers have the ability to overcome each other because they're all depopulated. Their armies are small. They can't worry about invading they're too busy trying to feed themselves and all the peasants are dying something like that so or maybe they want to stay in their own territory so they don't expose themselves to some okay. disease that's out there true that would be that would make some kind of sense yeah like a, a sort of loose quarantine type thing yeah it just got me thinking this quote got me thinking of a quote from the romance of the three kingdoms and it's actually how the book begins which is it just uh, starts with this sort of all-time saying the empire when long United must divide, and when long divided, must reunite. Ah, hmm. That's really so cool. The, Tell the cyclical nature of a, the the way these stories happen, and, and the way it breaks apart and comes back together. It's uh, almost cool. proverbial. Actually, give us a minute or two on the uh, the romance of the three kingdoms. That's a really like epic sort of. Some people have compared it to Game of Thrones, like the Chinese Game of Thrones. Right? Is that kind of uh, mm-hmm. accurate, or would you describe it similarly? It has yeah. like four key pieces of literature, or is that right? And that's one of them? And that, like the that... cornerstones or whatever? Oh, you know, it's, it's one of the, the classic stories. And the romance, as the name would imply, it is, it is a fictionalized telling. So it's got uh, magic and, and sorcery and all kinds of high drama and people making oaths of brotherhood in a peach garden and things like that. But it, it is a very fun retelling of a very real period of, of history, which was the twilight era and then the fall of the Han dynasty after 400 years and how China sort of shattered into these three entities that were just in mutual hatred with each other and None of them could really win over the entire territory, even though they all felt like they had. And it took more than a come along to reunify. And then almost the instant it reunifies, then it reshatters again into 16 kings. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so is George making this reference to three powers in E.T. right now? That does sound like a hint, a clue. And he's probably read it. He's probably read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, I would guess. At least in the TV show. Okay, yeah. I, I, I think I need to read it now. I'm, I'm inspired to go read is there, it. Right is there a TV show about it? Oh, yeah. It has been? Okay. Oh, yeah. Are there multiple TV shows about it? I would. Im- I think there are probably multiple iterations of That's it. Cool. Is it called Romance of the Three Kingdoms? Yeah, or sometimes it's just Three Kingdoms. Um, okay. okay. Nice. But it's 
it's I think there's an anime, there's a comic book, there's a live action TV series. Hmm. Uh, okay, it's big. Nice. <laughs> you can also see in this example another capital, another example of a capital being shifted or declared or started there, and just just this something that works there. If you have enough power and declare yourself emperor or powerful, then it, that's the way it goes there. That's a that's a valid play in ET. <laughs> That 400-year Han dynasty, is that the longest dynasty? What's the longest dynasty that maintained control over China? Han is one of the longest, almost as long as Tang, which is probably the, the real cultural high point. And that's in the, the 9th to about 11th centuries. And it's that's when China is at its most swaggering and... Uh, really feeling like it's on top of the world. But the, the Mongols longest, come along not too long after that, right? Isn't that the... The long is in between them, and they last for uh, a few hundred years, but they are... A re- they're, the, they're really, really rich, but they're not really good at war fighting, and they're surrounded by neighbors who are better at that than they are. So they just wind up paying their neighbors off for a few centuries until the neighbors are like, but we could just have the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it was under then that there were a lot of like science and culture flourished, though, right? Excellent monetary policy. I mean, fantastic, expansive trading with their neighbors and very good at defensive warfare. Very good at making Genghis Khan and his sons take much longer than they thought it was going to take control of Riverlands. But just Barney Fife at offensive warfare, a real embarrassment. Time, <laughs> like the guy who the example from this from this episode where the guy got his is now the drinking cup. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like. I wonder if not for Genghis Khan, if they would have developed enough experience and wealth to have eventually fought off the next Genghis Khan that might have come along. So there would have been more value in trade with them rather than trying to get past their defenses. Let's just be their ally. I wonder if that would have, mm-hmm. if it would have gotten to that point. The comedy of errors that is the later half of the Song Dynasty when it comes to military misadventures and just total total shooting yourself in, the, in your own foot is you could write books on it. It's, it's <laughs> well, I'm the chancellor um, in charge of everything in, in politics right now. And we have this one general whose name is Ye Fei, and he is this fantastic battlefield general. And he is just taking the fight to the barbarians and he is winning. And so I'm going to have him arrested and murdered because I don't like him. <laughs> Whoa, that's some serious foot shooting right there. That is some major foot shooting. Like he's our most important warrior. Kill him. <laughs> our most yeah. important leader. Yeah. Can't have that. <laughs> what? One difference in China, though, is that there was a lot more back and forth between long and short reigns, whereas in ET, it seemed to like be this gradual diminishment, right? Yeah, That's a, a distinction. maybe. Yeah, like there were long reigns that when there was the more the supernatural elements, maybe holding it together, the connection to these original deities, I suppose, or the history is just wrong about that. But I, I tend to believe to a certain extent that it's true. The, the longest period in Chinese historiography that's generally considered to be a, a single period is the Zhou, and it's one of the really earliest ones, and technically it lasts about 700 years or so, but the last half of it is 400 years of civil war that there's technically still a Zhou king for, but he they doesn't really do really peace. Mm. But that so, was like more than 2,000 years ago? 
Yes, oh, that wow. was in the second millennia and into the first millennia BC, and then the end of the world years ago. was the reunification into the very short-lived Qin Dynasty. Hmm. All right. I think that's mostly it. We've got a few questions to handle. We'll, we'll answer those questions, and then uh, we'll call it a night. Really? A, we're only at cool. three hours. I know. We're now. only at three hours. <laughs> only at three hours. What a, well, we're trying to cover the entire history of China and Yi Ti. Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. One super minor point here that I thought was like just worth mentioning because it's fun. There's two times where we see jade monkeys. One, we talked about monkeys earlier and we talked about jade a lot. Now here they come together. One is Illyrio's ship. He has like a whole shipment of jade monkeys that Danny absconds with as one of the many things she gives to the slavers to trade for the Unsullied. So uh, presumably she takes that back given she took all that back after <laughs> after pulling her great maneuver on the slavers there and pretending to trade them Drogon. But also Salador's song. when we see a brass monkey. <laughs> that funky monkey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but also Illyria or Salador San rather has... A shirt he's wearing when Davos comes in and he's got jade monkey buttons, <laughs> which I can, hmm. I got to assume those come from Yee-T. He may, he may have stolen them off a ship, like uh, one that, like Illyrio's, perhaps. <laughs> I imagine Salador San has stolen from Illyrio. <laughs> I think that's probably happening. I bet he has a brass monkey, too. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few funky monkeys out there. Call it aggressive negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a couple questions here. Maura Lee says, just a show of love and support, sending a super chat. Appreciate that. And she also sends another one and says, thank you, Chris, Aziz, Shea, and Sean for this great live stream. Appreciate that, Maura. I know you've got some Chinese connections in your family, so I hope this was yes. extra fun for you. Yeah, she was talking about her family that lives in China in the chat. So oh, yeah, cool. She uh, appreciated that. She also says, I think that is what Littlefinger is currently doing regarding saving the grain. Yeah, he has a grain sort of manipulation thing he's doing that's uh, uh, brought up mostly in the Elaine Winds of Winter chapter. He's telling all the other lords like what to do to maximize profit and while also maximizing suffering. Uh, but those two things go together for him. So people are starving. You can charge more for food. What we were just talking about, you know, but in a different uh, scenario, but same basic thing. In this case, he's smart enough to not be the guy they'll come for <laughs> so he can make his profit without worrying about being killed. Other people will want to kill being him. The guy, being the guy behind the guy is a pretty good position to be in most of the time. Yeah, the dude's pretty evil. No one's going to say he's dumb, though. He is very smart. <laughs> Emily S. says, you the great is an interesting character in Chinese light. Oh, thank you. I am the great. No, you the great. No, you the great. Yeah, you. <laughs> Who's on first? <laughs> <laughs> we the great. But no, seriously, you the great is an interesting character in Chinese legends. He built canals to control the floods. There are many references to meteorites in his stories, too, I believe. Oh, is that what, what do you know about you the great, Chris? You the great is one of the earliest figures. He's known as both one of the three sovereigns and one of the five initial dynasts. And he is considered to perhaps be the earliest actual human and non-demigod figure. Huh. And nevertheless, he does all kinds of demigod things. So Emily mentioned building canals to control the floods. This is We're talking about a diluvian-level flood where like the entire world just goes underwater and you is forced to spend decades dredging out these canals and river structures to to fix it and he uses dragons mm -hmm. and giant black dragon turtles which like to eat the mud oh, and uh, hmm. interesting he misses his 
He misses his son's entire childhood, and he passes by three times, and every time his son has gotten significantly older, and it's just that, that's how devoted he was to the cause. Oh, interesting. <laughs> wow. Man, I'm impressed. Every time we brought someone brought something up about Chinese history, you knew like you had an answer for everything. You were never stumped. That's really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Cause again, Chinese history is so damn big. And you just you were like, I know that. I know that one. I know that one. <laughs> That's awesome. Arya Saxena says, in the case of India, the capital changed depending on the time period. For most of the empires in the ancient period, the capital was Pataliputra. In the medieval period, most of the empires had Delhi as their capital. For a while, the Mughal Empire in the beginning had it as Agra. Then the British came and changed it to Calcutta and then back to Delhi. And that's a good that's a, it's a good example of, of moving capitals. India's got a, one of the real world cultures that is as old as any. Oh, yeah, yeah it, gets, it, go, it really goes far back. So and it's so it's a huge, vast land. I wish I was more versed in, in yeah. history. I'm <laughs> largely mysterious to me. So I would be easily stumped about all that. I wonder if um, we could draw any parallels between India and China. <laughs> <laughs> None whatsoever. Only <laughs> <laughs> <Just, laughs> zero. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Geologically close as they are, there's uh, relatively limited, there's been relatively liberal, little cultural interaction, and uh, it's largely because the Himalayas are right there oh. and really uh, blocking a whole lot of yeah. transit. It seems like Thailand is, is one of the real estuaries that has a lot of cultural combinations, because Thailand, the names sound very Indian, Right, they don't. They don't sound as Definitely. yeah. And there's a lot uh, of in, the Indian merchants Kong there. Delta, that's that's where the Indians uh, loved to send their boats to go trade uh, for okay. all the time. Nice. We used to we used to call it Indochina because it was nice. this cultural mix. Indochina, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. That term, yeah, I haven't heard that term in a while. But yeah, that is that's a thing. It's it's a it's an out of date term that's probably not best used very often but that's where it comes right on yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah shay you reminded us of one that i i I referred to this quote earlier this mentioned earlier but we didn't get any farther with it's worth a yeah i just wanted to mention since we were bringing up whether there were dragons in yt there's this line chai duck the fourth of the yellow emperors married a noble woman of valyria and kept a dragon at his court which does indicate that that, you know what we were talking about that after a certain point they weren't common in yt it doesn't mean that again pre-long night pre yeah. other things that, that they weren't there but it does make it seem like that was an anomaly yeah yeah exactly you're right it does make it sound like this is an exception rather than or, but this is a more recent but but so, he's a more recent emperor a relatively recent because it's a concurrent with valyria but uh yeah. post long night so we would have to presuppose or guess maybe that during the long night they lost the bloodlines that um, that that they had that were dragon rider oriented were died off during the long night. So Yi-T continued, but the Dragon Rider bloodlines were lost. That's yeah. my, where my head is at That's where this. my head's at with it, yeah. too. I, I do feel strongly that at one point they had dragons, but at, at, at uh, later they didn't. Yeah, yeah, I, I get to see. There's so, and we've, we've given a lot of reasons why it makes sense and how it would not make sense if they didn't, <laughs> at least at some point. David Zalewski says, I feel like the Yi-Tish emperors that ruled hundreds of years probably would just give their name to their heir and never really revealed themselves to the public and just said it was the same person we've guessed that same thing about the gray king's descendants about other descendants in westeros or they were just naming that and we we we've made we a similar about, point like, about the this. brandon starks and stuff yeah like all the brandons well. exa- perfect example yeah that's a great analog for this and it does make sense like you have the the scarlet emperors 
maybe early on they just didn't number them. They lost the numbering. But we hear examples of specifics, the 42nd Scarlet Emperor, the 20th Scarlet Emperor. Maybe back in super ancient times, they lost track or they just was a way to make them sound more powerful. Is there any kind of anything like this in, in real China or is this? Yeah, just, were there any like were there any emperors that were kind of said to have ruled longer that were really just multiple or, or like, like hid that? the continuity or anything like that? Or So there was never any uh, trying to hide the continuity. But what you have is is a lot of repeat of, of names and mm. they would actually have multiple different names so you'd have like era names that's that's the period the calendar's named after and sometimes they're called that and then there's their temple names which they only get after they're dead and it's supposed to denote like how good or bad of a ruler they were a lot of the time <laughs> and so like name 25 chinese emperors woo got it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an agon woo is the agon i really of, like uh, that joke i want to use that like name name five targaryen kings agon yeah that's amazing love it love it yeah uh, we all have our common names yeah it's like muhammad or something yeah they're just there's every place how many has louis were there in france yeah, yeah. louis there were a lot of louis. you're right there were a lot of damn louis in france king louis yeah <laughs> That's great. Okay, so the trivia question. Let's have the answer to our trivia question. What city is farthest east on the map that we know of? If you said the city of wingless men, you're not quite there. It's the second farthest. If you said Bone Town, that's third farthest. The answer is Carcosa. We even mentioned Carcosa in this episode, but didn't without, uh, without the geography attached to it. So that is the farthest east on the map. And next will be Kadath then Stigai, and then Nefer and Ashai are kind of lined up. They're tied for next. So there you go. Those are the farthest east cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next up for us next week is the Stepstones. That was the result of yet another Patreon vote. So that's what y'all picked for next time. We'll be talking about that. This is timely with Daemon Targaryen on the rise right now with the uh, the House of the Dragon coming in. He was king of the Stepstones for a while, so that'll be part of that episode. Uh, we also mentioned our Ashai episode, our Great Empire, the Dawn episode. But Chris, what is? Tell us where history of China is right now. What you're working on, and we'll try to get you some people interested in checking out the history of China if they haven't already. Well, we are uh, smack dab in the middle of the Ming Dynasty, which okay. is China being absolutely brilliant. That's what Ming means, bright or brilliant. Uh, and it is where this is the the period of time after. China's great voyages where you had the Admiral Zheng He constructing huge, I mean, gargantuan boats and sailing around the ocean and going to Africa and bringing back giraffes to China. So we're after that point. They decided we're done with that. Giraffes are cool and everything, but no more. And so now China has really sort of, it's, it's not exactly Tokugawa Japan. It's not exactly totally shut, but it's really less interested in the outside world. Oh. And it, it's very interested in making sure that the Mongols don't come back because oh. that's a very worrisome thing. I, I mentioned two and a half hours ago, there's the emperor who took 500,000 people up into Mongolia to have a fun time and they all got annihilated. There's the- this is when we get the, the Great Wall being constructed oh. and it's going to be fantastic and cool and it turns out it really does nothing. But just recently we had the Portuguese arrive and the Chinese are like, what in the heck are these weird looking people? <laughs> <laughs> Go away. And the Portuguese are like, No. <laughs> we got stuff to trade <laughs> but we also have you some other things we want to do 
<laughs> That's awesome. All right. A thank you to everyone who came live. I know we had an unusual start time. Hopefully a lot of y'all knew and we tried to spread the word. And if we have another late episode, we'll let y'all know. Thanks to Nina for her great notes this time, as usual. Thanks to all our supporters on Patreon for keeping this whole thing going. This time, as usual. This time, as usual. All times, (laughs) as usual, yes. I'm getting a little imprecise with my speech as it gets later at night. (laughs) Well, thank you for for making the exception to allow me to join you guys. It was a pleasure. It was so great to have you you guest. And it was honestly great to do a stream at a different time. Like to have that excuse has been fun for us as well, I have to say. Um, I feel like I learned more on this episode than maybe any other episode, which we set up at the beginning. I says, an expectation. That was, that was we, we know less about Chinese history, so this should all be more new stuff here. And that's great. It really worked out. It went as expected. And the reason, the part chat. of the reason it went so long is that we had so much fun things to talk about. We got someone in the chat. David Zaleski says, starting history of, uh, history of China now before bed. So we got right. one new Got at least person. one new listener. Heck yeah. <laughs> That's cool. One other point here. Jay is bored, requested a poll on this. There's a debate as to which human culture is the oldest. And Yi is among those along oh, with Giscari, the Ashai, and the Sarnor. That was a note for us at the end to do a Twitter poll. Oh, a Twitter he, he, poll. He just wanted a poll. And so oh, okay. I, I was like, we should totally have a poll on what people think. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, that's what you know. But so, sure, say it out loud. Everyone can know. That we'll, we'll, we'll I'll be posting poll. that poll then. So keep <laughs> stay tuned for that. Look out for that one on Twitter. I'll, I'll post it to Facebook as well. Yeah, so we'll you know, do the Facebook spot. group. And, uh, that's a good, good idea. You're right. Yeah. We can get, get that idea. I'll have to think I, about I it. Like I don't have a ready answer. I think I would say ET personally. Yeah, that's where I lean, but I might say Ashai. It's close. Yeah, it's close. I wouldn't say Sarnor or Giscari, I don't think. Okay. I have to think about more. I would take this card. Oh, would you? Okay. Yeah, well, okay. There are many points to consider. Yeah, All right. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, Kevin for the music. Your contributions are recurring because we play the music every time. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld, not only for the maps that I often point out, but also for the skulls. Yeah, for the shirt. <laughs> the skulls. And the intro outro. Yeah, yeah. So until next time, everyone, you know what to do. Valar Re-Redis.